Hello and welcome to our audience. We have a special event for you, uh, the Uranium Sector Update. The cycle has turned, featuring Mike Alkin and Chaleri of Sagem Cove Partners. Mike and Tim are two key people of a very small group, uh, in my opinion, of people around the world that have actually taken the thousands of hours needed to dismantle the uranium supply chain and uncovering really a very compelling situation that many have still failed to see with any clarity. So this event uh, is part of the Smith Weekly Value Add series. I am the event host, Andrew Weekly, founder and CEO of Smith Weekly Research, and thanks again for taking the time. We urge the audience to allocate attention to the screen shown here, as well as the event notes under the screen viewer for important notices and details about this event. Also, I'll point out that this event has been a donation of time from both the guests and Smith Weekly. We've uh, not paid them to join us and they've not paid us either. So uh, sit back and enjoy. And to our guests, we have Michael Alkin here with us. He is a chief investment officer and co-founder at Sachem Cove Partners. And we have Tim Chaleri here with us as well. Tim is analyst at Sachem Cove Partners. We're forgoing the introductions here as most folks uh, in the audience already know these guys uh, quite well, and you'll hear more about them as we get talking here. Gentlemen, welcome to both of you, and uh, how is life treating you? Everything's going very well, Andrew. It's uh, We're through 2020 into 2021. It's already uh, through January, uh, almost here, so time's flying per usual, but uh, we continue to plug along like we always do. Excellent. Yeah, well, good how are you doing, Andrew? How's, how's your family and everything? Good. No, everything's going really well and, uh, you know, fortunate to uh, to still be here and, and enjoy these interesting times in the markets and, and on the globe and just life in general. A lot's changed and uh, looking forward to uh, to more fun and excitement fireworks in 2021. Um, well, guys, we have uh, a number of things we want to talk about here, but I guess let's start out here with just a startup question first for Mike. Um Mike, how do you like your coffee in the morning? And when you look at the broad financial markets today, what is your first and foremost concern? Uh, how do I like my coffee? Um, I, I uh, no milk, no no sugar, so straight. Um, that that's how I like my coffee. Um, uh, the financial the financial markets. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, Andrew, can you hear feedback? Uh, can you hear uh, beeps coming in? Just, just I'm just curious. I just want to make no. sure. I, okay, because I, I have a program on in the background that uh, a Bloomberg where I'm getting uh, messages sent to me, and I want to make sure you can hear it. So, um, uh, just, just so it doesn't bother you guys. Uh, but uh, I, um, you know, um, I think it's a very interesting time. There, there has been. Um, uh, you know, you can make this case look all the, the all the, the the twin deficits and all the debt that's been added on, but that's been going on for quite some time. Um, and so you you know, who knows when that's going to eventually kick in? Um, it, I I do I do uh, you know my view on the on the market is I'm I'm more I, I look at the dollar I look at the case for potentially a weaker dollar, uh, which would uh, square with where we are with the uh, disconnect between commodity prices and equity valuations. Um, you know, commodity prices are, are 
actually they're, the prices are moving up, but the valuation between the, the, the two asset classes is, is stretched with equities being extremely high. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not a, a bubble guy. I, I don't really get into that, but I, I see odd behaviors sometimes or odd circumstances in the market. Um, you know, I, I, where over the last couple of years, things that I'm more familiar with uh, rooted in valuation seem to not matter that much. Um, you know, it's, it seems much more driven by narrative and stories and, and you just need to recognize that. And if you're not comfortable playing in certain things, you just don't, um, you know, uh, for me, I'm not going to go play in things that I'm not comfortable with. It doesn't mean other people are wrong for doing it. It means that's what they're comfortable with. So, you know, I'm not a big broad as the, uh, I don't have a big broad view right now. I think the market is, is toppy. I think there's a reason for, uh, you know, you've had uh, tech fueled, uh, growth. Um, tech is a major component of the S&P. I think they've had a, the pandemic's been a big lift for them, for big tech. You know, um, you know, is that going to continue? I, 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 who knows? Um, I, I personally think I'd rather be in more uh, out of favor, uh, commodity-driven type industries where I think uh, there's less eyeballs focused on it, and and not, and it's not priced in. So, yeah. Yeah, I like that. And uh, Tim, I want to ask you the same thing. Likewise, your morning coffee and your top consideration in today's broad market. Yep. So like Mike, I'm actually a uh, black coffee guy. Um, so very simple on that front. Um, you know, in terms of markets, it's it's kind of funny. You know, we, we Mike and I are, are pretty similar. I mean, it's not a coincidence that we probably stumbled into the uranium market together many years ago, just based on our lens of the world. Um, there are people who are just much smarter than me who understand a lot of the macro pieces. I mean, I, I do read and try to understand what some of the macro investors are looking at in terms of the dollar, um, in terms of some of the uh, dynamics at play between central banks. And there are people on both sides of that trade. I know that there are people who are strong dollar bulls. I know that there are people who are pretty convinced that the dollar is headed significantly weaker. And they make convincing arguments. And who am I to say that one's going to be right and the other one's going to be wrong? You know, I'm just not sure. So I like to focus on what's comfortable for me, which tends to be cyclical industries. It tends to be focused on commodities just because that's also my background. Um, you know, since I've come out of university, I've, I've been in the commodity markets uh, my entire career so far. So that's where I'm comfortable. Um, so when you're looking at companies in these some, some of these sectors, whether it's gold miners that are uh, you know, printing a lot of free cash flow, paying back debt, you know, those sectors are much more interesting to me than, say, uh, you know, the fangs of the world, if you will. So. Uh, that's where we continue to focus on these niche markets. That's where I'm comfortable with, where there's a lot less eyeballs. Um, and that's kind of how uh, I look at things today. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's and great. I generally agree as well. And um, certainly the uh, the coffee side of things, uh, some mornings it has to be spiked. But other than that, um, <laughs> you know, certainly I agree with you guys on the straight black attitude and I need to keep my sugar down. Uh, <laughs> well, well, look, uh, maybe Tim or Mike here either of you maybe refresh the audience on the meaning of looking at places that are really misunderstood they don't have a crowd and quite frankly they're still soaked in red yeah you know maybe i can take that one for now um you know for for us and and for me uh i personally find it a lot easier to go to places 
where you know certain people are not going to be. So, for example, a lot of the really hardcore, you know, the 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 the, the Warren Buffett views of the world, the hardcore value guys, they're not going to be looking typically at cyclical, super cyclical industries to begin with. So you're, you're wiping people right off, you know, certain sectors right to begin with, who I believe are much smarter than me to begin with. Um, so I've just always had a lot of success um, by accident. It was never a plan of mine to look at markets specifically uh, that are less popular um, whether it's because it's not being followed on the you know popular financial programs um, or various you know internet investing chat boards etc, uh, I just kind of fell into it due to my career path. Um, you know, starting as a futures and options broker, working my way into a physical commodity trading position where I had a lot of success. And so I just kind of woke up one day and realized, you know, maybe you should be focusing on places that a lot of other people are not um, because you potentially could have informational edges. There's only a couple of real ways to get edges in the market. And it's very hard to find informational edges today. And that's just due to technology and the internet, the the amount of information that is spread around the marketplace from uh, professional investors. There are a lot of, uh, even even some of the amateur retail investors, I mean, you call them amateurs, but they're, they're, they're really good at what they do, right? You look at some of the social media platforms, there's really interesting people out there with interesting backgrounds putting out information on companies and sectors. So because of this dearth of information, there's a lot of it. So I prefer and we prefer to go to places where there's less of that because it's just so hard to get an informational edge. And obviously we feel that we're, we continue to have an informational edge in the uranium market, which is one of the reasons why we ended up kind of going there once we uncovered the thesis, you know, vetted the thesis and felt that there was something there. So that's kind of a long-winded way of my view on that, Andrew. Yeah, and both of you guys have come into the natural resource sector, uranium uh, specifically, and you've worked hard sorting out the nuts, bolts, washers, and the screws of how it functions. I'd like to know if you guys agree that due to the broader markets in tech, crypto, biotech, psychedelics, and other places, um, that the bulk of the commodities have a lot of runway as the market eventually rotates. Do you guys agree with that premise and that uranium has one of the best performance profiles? Yeah, I mean, um, sure, we we do. Well, you know, we we think that uh, you know, uranium's unique unto itself, right? I mean, you could lump it; it's a commodity, um, but it's it's not a commodity that has really speculation in the marketplace. It doesn't have real price discovery on a regular basis, right? There's there's a bullshit futures market that's out there that's that's just so small, it's insignificant. Um, you basically have one cohort of buyers, and that's electric utilities. You know, 60 of them around the world that are going to step up and and buy this stuff. And then you have some uh, traders who aren't uh, really traders; they're just, uh, you know, they're they're uh, book order entry jockeys that move it back and forth for a few cents a pound here and there. But they have no no view, no committed capital. It's 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 you know it's 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 they're 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 order takers. Um, so it it has its own cycle. And it, it feeds off itself. Now, will that will that catch a commodity bucket when capital starts flowing into it? Yeah, I think you're seeing that. Um, I think when you know it's catching nuclear is catching an ESG feel to it uh, that uh, people are recognizing. If you're going to achieve these carbon neutral goals, to get there, you need uh, nuclear power to be part of the mix, part of the conversation. Um, uh, uranium money gets gets swept up in that. 
uh, I think you're also seeing that people look, step back and say, hey, wait a second, if, you know, commodities have been out of favor for quite some time and, and uh, if, if, if we're dollar weak, uh, if we're in the dollar weakening camp, uh, that, that's good for commodities. Um, and therefore, uh, what, what's, what's really cheap? And then people take a look and look at the supply demand situation of uranium and they spend a little time looking at it and they'll come to the conclusion that we did. So yeah, we, you know, it, it, it has its own cycle. It's funky. It doesn't have price, price speculation like most others do, uh, price discovery on a regular basis, but being a commodity, it will also catch, not only will it have its own unique uh, features, but it will catch the general commodity move, we think. It's, it's zero, it plays zero part of our thesis, though. Yes. Yeah, and I certainly agree with a lot of that thought process. And, you know, there are other attractive opportunities in the precious metal, base metal, you know, oil, oil services, maybe a bit mm -hmm. of coal and a few others. But I, I really still fail to see that, uh, you know, the best performance profile, I think, is standalone. And oh, uh, that's, that's, that's certainly uranium in my view. In our and view, I guess there's, nothing that, there's nothing that comes close. It's, it's uranium. Agreed. And, you know, really, to, to sum up these sectors, though, Mike and Tim, you know, everything we use comes from either mining or growing things, and the growing things still uses things that we mined. Yeah, so it's, right. it's just fantastic. Yeah, and, um, you, know, be, be, you know, given our time, you know, just in, in, and Mike's as well, and, and yours as well, Andrew, is um, you see the cyclicality. You see when things get popular, when things uh, fall out of favor. Um, this is natural. This happens across all kinds of sectors all the time, you know, and, and it might take, you know, 10 or 12 years or it might take 10 or 15 years. But it, but not not saying that, you know, the, the commodities from here are going to take 10 or 15 years. But, you know, th these go through cycles. And to your point, Andrew, the the world he's not he's it, not saying that, by the way. <laughs> Right, right. It's just that, that the, the world is, is looking at, you know, maybe the commodity sector as, you know, very undervalued. But, you know, we're going through COVID. But as the world returns to a bit of a more, I quote unquote, normal or new normal, whatever you want to call it, uh, at the end of the day, you know, how do we get these resources to the market? Uh, how do we get these things to where they need to be in terms of the energy transition? So that's what's exciting for us, you know, looking at, you know, where does uranium fit within uh, that broader um, view? So that's what gets us excited. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, look, uh, new normal, what have you. Uh, the fact is we still need these things. And, you know, last I checked as human beings, we're still very basic creatures still need to eat food. We still need to cross the street. We still need to use the restroom. Um, you know, fairly simple things. We have desires, uh, you know, really simple setup here. And I think the sanity does come back. Well, let's move on. Let's talk, uh, let's get into uranium here, guys. Um, Tim, maybe just start out by covering the supply side risk that we have before us in 2021, 2022. And are these problems making it into the off-market discussions what are you seeing and hearing out there? Yeah, well, you know, certainly, um, you know, one year ago, uh, you know, sitting in late January 2020, um, it was just coming to the fruition of what was this thing happening uh, in the world with this coronavirus. Um, it was just kind of hitting the wires. We weren't really sure what it was. And I don't think anybody on planet Earth had any idea that it was going to impact us the way that it has. Um, certainly, I was not able to forecast that. Um, and so because of that, we obviously saw some of the uh, uh, Karen maintenance decisions uh, to go down. Um, both uh, from Cameco, 
Uh, we saw some uh, potential kind of closures there temporarily in other jurisdictions as well, like in Namibia. We saw the pause of well field development um, and some of the activities from Kazataprom and their relevant uh, joint venture partners. Um, and so as we move through 2020 and into 2021, no one really expected that this would continue to drag on and drag on, I think. And so here we are today where we know Cigar Lake has gone back on care and maintenance uh, for some period of time. Cameco has been, I think, pretty clear with the market in that uh, they have specific metrics to try to ensure that they have enough employees and that the situation, as they last stated, it was getting worse in, in the jurisdiction of uh, Saskatchewan, so they're closely watching the the COVID-related um, infection rates and um, you know all of that that is happening. Uh, we recently saw some of the uh, news coming from Kazakhstan that uh, there were some infections at a particular JV Katko, um, which is the the uh, uh, Kazataprom and Arano joint venture. So uh, the point of all this is that the risks remain out there, and and I don't. No, we're certainly not saying that, well, you know, tens and tens of millions of pounds might come offline tomorrow. That's certainly not what we're saying. But the risks are out there uh, that we've highlighted to the industry for a few years now. You know, in the past, we've seen fires and floods affect mines and mining operations. Um, this time, it's maybe not fire and floods, but a COVID-related uh, care and maintenance shutdown um, to protect workers, uh, to protect employees. So. Uh, these risks are out there. Again, we're not saying that there's going to be billions of pounds that come offline tomorrow or anything like that, but the risks continue to impact this market yesterday, today, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, they're going to continue to be a risk factor as we move forward uh, in 2021. And that doesn't even include the actual, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to mention the, the fact that there are some actual uh, mines closing permanently due to depletion. Uh, we know the Ranger mine in Australia has recently ceased uh, processing and that in Niger, uh, Colmenac, which is a Arano joint venture with a couple other firms as well, uh, that after some 50 years or so of mining that that uh, is depleted and will be closing permanently as well. So the supply, and this is all factored in the market. Everyone knows that Ranger was going to go down. Everybody knows that Comanac was going to go down, but those are pounds coming out of the market that will need to be replaced in some way, shape or form. Yeah, certainly. And, and Olympic, they're waiting for higher copper prices, much higher copper prices to do anything there. So Mike, along this, you keep in touch with utilities. What's your interpretation of their focus with COVID operational concerns, restocking? Do they really care about supply concerns at this point? What do you think? In a, you know, uh, it's interesting, right? So um, I think a lot of weight's given to utilities. Are Utilities are, first of all, the, the fuel buyers are very bright people. They're nuclear engineers. They're, they're very smart. Um, they happen to work in an industry that uh, where de demand and supply are inelastic and um, <clears throat> they need it and they're going to pay for whatever the price is when they need it. And so th th you, there's no substitute for what they need to buy. And so it's it uh, it will carry that course. They are you just have to step back, Andrew, when you think about this market. And if you go back and look at history in this market to understand how the market reacts, if you go back and look to the early 2000s, 
before the prior, uh, the price of uranium was 10, 12, 14 dollars a pound. <clears throat> At that time, the long-term contracting as a percentage of annual consumption was sitting in the 31, 35, 38, 39 range for many years. You had 15 years or so of, of oversupply. You had a tremendous uh, uh, oversupply party will continue narrative. You had in the, in the late 80s, you had massive new supplies coming from the Soviet Union via the megatons to megawatts. You had the Olympic Dam project in, in the late 80s, early 90s that was coming online. You had MacArthur River, the richest deposit in the world. It came online in the 90s. Uh, so you, you saw just a, a plethora of, of supply coming online and prices stayed low. And then as uh, as you started to, they started to wear down and burn down inventory. And as you started to come up right before the bull market in uranium of 2004, there was a tremendous amount of under contracting, not contracting their annual consumption needs. And so when you put yourself in a situation where you draw down your inventories, and if you go back and look at that period of time, you had uh, much, you had uh, um, lower, uh, you had higher supplier inventories, much higher producer inventories back then, and 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 lower utility inventories. But when you did the total commercial, when you add both of those together, they're they're lower today than they were then. Um, so you, you people will cherry pick and say, oh, utility inventory then versus now, or but you have to look at both. You have to look at what was supplier. Supplier inventory today is basically is, is basically very very little. So, but when you look at what happened when prices started to tick up, now what was it then? Back then in 04, 05, it was it was a host of things. It was a it was a flood. It was a fire. It was a technical outage at, at a mine, and that's what Tim was referencing earlier. Uh, it was a failed delivery uh, of uranium. One little thing led to another. Inventories were down low. The market was tightening, and but yet you had all this under contracting in 01, 02, 03. If you read if you read what was being said back then, so if you went back and did the research and said, okay, what was the prevailing sentiment at the time? Okay, let's. The, the UXC winter survey, and this is not uh, uh, disparaging of UXC, it's their survey of, of, of market participants. What was it? Quote, buyers don't believe there's a problem. They delay contracting. They're failing to send the needed signals to producers. For their part, producers have been burnt so many times in the past, they're not about to invest more in a mere promise of an improving market. Consequently, nothing gets done. Winter survey 2003, price of uranium is about, I don't know, 14 bucks on its way to 137 in the next few years. Irrational expectations, the reaction to talk of any impending supply shortfalls that we've heard this warning a number of times before and nothing has happened. So, of course, why would it happen now, right? UXC winter survey, February 2003, right before the dawn of this. And what was the ingredients? Low inventory levels. Underinvestment by suppliers, exactly what you have right now. The difference is it's a much better, uh, you've got a better demand story now and no new mine supply coming online. So with fuel buyers, so what are we talking about in this market? What you're talking about is, Andrew, when we started looking at this market five years ago, if we wanted to go into the spot market in any given month, we could have probably found 15 million pounds. If fast forward to today, if we wanted to go in the spot market and wanted to find more than 1 million free floating pounds, we're going to drive the price up a lot. 
right? So it's worked down very meaningfully. So you're at the point in this cycle where you're, it's, it's psychological, it's recency bias driven. It's, it's traders know they can't go secure many pounds at all. Uh, so, so the market's sitting there saying, okay, well, when are fuel buyers going to come in and start buying? Well, they're out there. They're having these discussions now, several conversations, which are bilateral off-market discussions, and it goes back and forth. You're not going to see where contracts are signed there. Uh, when exactly what's being signed for, uh, they, the utilities still want lower prices. They're not going to get lower prices. Nobody's giving them lower prices. And, and so you're, you're at this stage where it's, it's a tug of war. They're dealing with COVID issues. Producers are not blinking. They're not, they're not saying, okay, uh, we'll give you lower prices. And it's just part of the, the cat and mouse, the negotiations. But the bottom line is this. If utilities don't start contracting like yesterday, they're hosed. They're 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 going to be paying prices uh, significantly higher than they need to be paying, and which probably happens. But but whether or not it's it's is it three months, six months? Who knows? The reality is though, supply is low, demand is is has improved. Uh, no new mines are coming, um, and and there's such a disconnect between supply and demand structurally. And oh by the way, getting back to under contracting, since 2013, they've on average contracted 35% of supply, just like last time. And, and they're sitting there with enormous uncovered needs uh, over the next several years. Long-winded version of saying, you know, I, I see Twitter. I don't really talk on it anymore. People day-to-day -day are wondering. There's nothing to wonder day-to-day. -day. Do the math. The math is the math. The noise you hear, the, the noise people hear, um, just just go go and understand the historical context of where all of this is and put it in context of where today is. And, 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 and stop trying to guess every day of, oh, 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 spot price moved a nickel today, a quarter. Who gives a shit? It doesn't matter. The horse has left the barn. There's not enough supply. Utilities are going to get run over. They played this market beautifully for many years. They stayed out of the market while prices were declining. They overplayed their hand. If they come back today, tomorrow, six months from now, you're going to see in price discovery, that's their problem. And that's just kind of where it is right now. Yeah, and it's it is the prettiest girl in the room, and it's a beautiful setup. But yeah, really, just like you said, you summarized it well. It's I mean, it's something like you really have a choice: just in time thinking or just in case thinking. So choose yeah. wisely and and really tell your yeah. story buying. Yeah, and you can find several. You can go talk to fuel buyers now, and some will say, mm -hmm. you know what? Yeah, I know we got to pay fifty bucks, fifty five. Um, we'll, we'll get there. Others, others are out there quietly try, trying to uh, sign contracts for not quite that, but but better prices than you, you see on the surface. And then there are other guys out there going, yep, yeah, there's so much inventory out there. Yep, there's so much supply. Look at prices. We're not doing that. Same guys who are out there begging for pounds at 90 last time and 80 last time. It's just yep. human nature. And you and, see and just it. Like and, and by Just the way, like and I'll say market. this, and Tim will jump in. We yeah. talk to them. We know supply demand better than we know, you know, the back of our hands. That this is what we do and have for five years. And when we talk to these market participants, whether traders or whether fuel buyers, and you want to dive down deep with them on supply and demand, there's nothing greater than a conviction driver than doing that with them. Because we could think of two people in all of our travels that do that on both either the trading side or the utility side that will really sit down 
and have a discussion with you about real fundamental supply demand. It doesn't exist. It's it's all driven by sentiment, and 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 there can be no better setup than than that. So anyway, what are you saying? Yeah, but the only thing I can add to that is that you know whenever you know typically internally when we're talking about utilities and what they're doing, this is they call it the eighty twenty rule, right? Where twenty percent does eighty percent of the work. You know, we, we call it the ninety ten rule, right? There, there's about ten percent of the market we think that is really out there doing the things that they should be doing right now, which is quietly covering, quietly taking care of their fuel cycle needs from uh, SWU up to conversion, up to the feedstock U308, which we can talk about a little bit because I think it's under discussed. Uh, so these nimbler, smaller you know, utilities that are at the tip of the spear, if you will, in their industry are playing it smart. Um, but that's a very small percentage of them, and they tend to be smaller utilities that are much more nimble. Um, you know, they're not these behemoths out there per se, um, and so they're playing it smart. The rest, they're kind of biding their time. They're trying to figure out what to do. They're trying to make sure that their plants are running. Um, but like Mike said, it's just it's a little bit too late. The, the, the page should have turned in 2019, 2020, and I know 2020 was a very difficult year because of COVID. You know, we all understand that. But at a certain point, it, you got to play some catch up. And, and again, whether it's tomorrow or a year from now, I really don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, they're still having their safety meeting in the morning and, and still talking oh, about look, COVID. You know, yeah. They, they look, started, they're, so. they're, these fuel buyers are work. They've Look, the fuel buyers played it beautifully, staying out of the market. There was way too much supply. It was a tremendously oversupplied. When when their first round of contracts were expiring post oh, paying up in the 0789 range, they they stayed out of the market. They were very smart. And then, but just like anything, they they when you do something so long, you become kind of complacent, and you believe it's always going to be there. And it was one of the first things that Tim and I noticed early on in our work was that. There was no recognition that things could change. And what we always heard was, yeah, we've heard this before. We've heard this before. And so here you are in like 2015 and 16 and 17 saying, oh, we always hear there's, there's, there's uh, not going to be enough supply. But here we are. Well, I'm sorry. Just a decade ago, you, you, you were paying twice of what you needed to pay, twice of what, what the market needed to be balanced because you freaked. And you panicked, and and it's as though those those memories just faded and didn't exist. And then one of the things we always do in any industry, we just wrote about this at length in our in our letter to our investors, was being a student of the cycles and understanding the history of the site of the industry cycle that you're looking at. There's no greater educator than that, and. Armed with that and armed with the behavior of the of the cohort of buyers uh, and producers, but armed with that and then seeing how it squares with the mathematical realities and then what you're hearing. And that's where in this, you know, and you see, oh, my God, the recency bias is staggering. It's just what was will be and what just recently was will be. And then when you push back on it. It's not supported by a fundamental argument. And so the fuel buyers are incredibly bright people, obviously, being nuclear engineers. Uh, they are under 
a lot of pressure depending on regionally where they are uh, do, do, do their costs get reimbursed some some of the fuel buyers are dealing with plants that are not competitive to natural gas and they have real issues right and everyone is looking to save a nickel and save a dime but at some point you overplay the hand right you got to look around the table you got to know when to fold them <laughs> and yeah. and to walk to and, and done that and so it's just you can't outrun the math. Now, what they can do and have done is say, okay, well, we're just not going to go and in mass load up on contracts. Okay, well, you know, you've you've got a lot. They've got a lot to deal with. These these people are are dealing with tremendous burden during COVID, but that just exacerbates their problem. It doesn't solve it um, because at the end of the day, they when we speak to them. We, we know, oh, well, this mine's coming online, that mine's coming online. Andrew, the world of junior mining is so full of shit, right? So many of these <laughs> CEOs spend most of their time figuring out how to put lipstick on a pig. And there is no, there is no standardized all-in sustaining cost in uranium. And when you look across these projects and you look across the universe of what's real and what's not and the timeframes, it's laughable. But what happens is the fuel buyers look at that too and they're like, well, this one's coming on. And you're like, dude, you don't really, you can't be serious. You think that XYZ project is going to be a real, really? And so, but they get there and, and it takes one or two. And then all of a sudden it's a stampede. And, and that's kind of, it doesn't need to be that way. Right. When, when we talk to the, like I said, there's one trader that we have immense respect for from a, we have respect for all of them as people, but from a business standpoint, who there's one trading outfit, I should say, that does a really good job of understanding supply and demand. The other guys, I mean, they'll, they'll say to you, well, we really are just worried about what's there today, tomorrow, and the next week. There's, there's no balance sheet. They can't take a long-term view. So without that price speculation in the market, with the fuel buyers just trying to figure out how to get through tomorrow, um, and some of them being cocky, you know, we, we see it. Um, but, and we also know who they're referencing for their supply demand work, which is, we think is laughable as we've laid out before publicly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it is what it is. It's, 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 it will get there, uh, you know, and, and we, that, that horse has left the barn. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, the, uh, the arithmetic is good. There's no doubt about that. It's, it's phenomenal in fact. And, yeah. you know, uh, you know, the other thing I would just add too is, your guys's wives like mine have to be very forgiving individuals because yeah. uh, we live, eat and breathe, you know, uranium. Yeah. And uh, so, so good on them. And, and I'm glad uh, you guys <laughs> picked the right ones uh, for this type of setup. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. My wife does not want to hear about uranium anymore. She does not care. So <laughs> we've been talking, we've talked about it for too much. <laughs> well, she's sticking in there. I think she sees the reward. Um, so, you know, certainly, and I would just say too, to the utilities, you know, yeah, looking at slide decks of these junior mining companies or, or you know, hopeful mining companies, uh, you know, that's not the right place to look. And then the other part too is, you know, what happens when you go through the McDonald's drive-through and the spicy chicken nuggets aren't available? I mean, that's just <laughs> doesn't work. Well, I mean, it is, and and you know, the and 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 the utilities know they know some of these uh, projects are bullshit. But they're going to use it, right? They're going to use it in the negotiation process. And well, I'll look at what's coming on. But these are bright people, right? And and again, if you you have to sit down and compare, 
That's why the world of, you know, like junior mining is dangerous, man, right? Don't ever forget uh, what Mark Twain said, right? A mine is a hole in the ground with a liar standing next to it. You, not everyone, but you got to be careful. A number of them are, and the promotion is crazy. And especially as prices start turning, you know, um, I mean, I, t Tim and I have just been, Tim shut Twitter totally. I've just stopped talking on it because I'm not, you know, I'm, who am I? I don't know what somebody's interests are uh, in terms of, you know, macro-wise, I, I, uranium-wise, we have a view, but people people just don't, they, they come at you all day and night with, what do you think of this name or that name or that company or this company? You get DMs. I, I have, I'm not going to comment on that, right? I just have no interest in that. So I just, I don't even check. I check it once every couple of weeks because that's not my thing to tell people what they should or should not invest in. But my God, just do the work on some of these things. And then, and now you're starting to see people come out of the woodwork. This guy's an expert. That guy's an expert. They know the industry. Really, nobody knows who they are. Like what fuel buyers talk to them, you know, certain things. So it, it, you just got to be careful. It's very tricky. The, yeah, the we, we've said it before, you know, we've said it before that you've got to do your own due diligence. And that goes beyond listening to interviews, including this one. You know, we've, we've right. said it in the past. You know, you've got to do primary research. Companies offer quarterlies. Uh, uh, you know, it enrichers. Uranco puts out a, a, a half annual and an annual report. Um, go and read as much primary, <laughs> primary being the key word, not a news article, a primary research uh, a place. And just go, just go read a 10K. Just go read something for a day. You're going to learn something. I guarantee it. And it's going to generate a lot of questions. When we started in this, you know, every question we answered led us to 10 more questions. You know, and you just would have to start working through it and working through it. And particularly in the mining space, you know, you, you do have to be careful. This is why we tell people, make sure you're doing due diligence. Make sure you understand management and the asset and, you know, the geology around it, the mining engineering around it. You've got to spend time doing that. So it's up to people, if you're going to invest your money, that you are your own portfolio manager. You're the one who is going to have to have conversations with yourself in the mirror about why you're buying or selling. And don't rely on anybody else but yourself to make those decisions. You, know, you can ask people, but at the end of the day, you're the one who has to pull the trigger on these things. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You're 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 full responsible for your actions here, and makes it makes complete sense to me. And and meanwhile, Mike's uh, closed Twitter account or or a silent Twitter account continues to gain followers, even with Mike not saying any words, which is well, great. Uh, well, you, you, know, you know, it's funny. I and also what I realize is like there's a I won't name a couple of people, but you know, saying oh he's he's not talking for what? Uh, okay, well. So you want me to, I, I don't, I'm not a promoter. I don't know what to say. I, I, we've laid out our supply demand case on seven. I mean, I don't know how many decks we have out there, which is pretty detailed decks that I don't think I see from anyone else that are way, that are out there with how we arrived at what it is. And then after that, there's not a lot to say. It's just constantly doing the work right. and, and that's it. And once in a while, I'm happy to do these, but I, there, it's not, it's not that, I don't want to. There's nothing to say, right? The, the, these, it's it's supply, it's demand, it's an inelastic market. It's there are buckets of things that you look at, right? Why, why nuclear? What's going on in the demand side, country by country? Um, where are we in the contracting? Where what's uncovered demand happening? Where are we on the cost curve? Okay, you lay it out there, and then the, your greatest ally is is time. Um, oh yeah. And, you know, and patience, 
And, and, you know, I, I chuckle when we started looking, I forget where the price 15 or six in 2015 or 16, it was 17 bucks a pound or 18 bucks a pound. Uh, uh, I think when we launched Sachem, it was 22 bucks and here we are. I'm referencing spot just cause it's easy. That's what people recognize. Now it's what 30 bucks. Um, it, it, it's, it, and how we look at it is what's the risk reward? What's, is it going, is the price going to go up or down? Well, it's got, it keeps going up. And, and it just keeps getting to where it needs to get to. And then what will happen is, boom, all of a sudden it's going to hit a wall, not a hit a wall, I had this wrong term. It's going to just be like an accelerant where it, it's moving, it's climbing, it's slowly climbing, it's slowly climbing. The, the buyers are starting to still, you know, I'll give you an example. We spoke to a trader, and I won't mention the name, um, two weeks ago, Tim, I guess it was. Um, yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, and and this trader uh, f- who we spoke to for quite some time would o- over the you know four or five years would say, oh yeah, there's more uranium out there and you can shake a stick at. Yep, yep, oh yeah, mountains of it. Yep. And now we knew after speaking to said trader uh, once um, the first time that this guy has no idea what supplier demand is, um, doesn't can't see past tomorrow. But but been around doing this and all that, but not his job because there's no balance sheet to express the view long-term. It's just, let's move pounds from point A to point B. Let's sell back and forth to each other. And that's what they do. That's fine. It's, it, that's, they're not they're salespeople. They're not traders, as you know it. But that's what they do. Um, but it became very clear. And what you realize is when you come into this market from as an, quote, outsider, as they, they look at us as outsiders, um, they look at us and say, okay, well, they're out. They don't know what, right? I'm, I'm sorry, what, you need to be a nuclear engineer to do fourth grade math? Nope. <laughs> because I couldn't be a nuclear engineer or a geologist, but you don't need to be a nuclear engineer to do math, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. But but anyway, in, ta- in talking to this guy over the years, and you establish a benchmark, right? Oh, yeah, all you could see. And then, you know, we played stupid four years ago or so. You start talking to people, and they don't know that you're armed with all the math, and you just start letting them talk and letting them talk. And then I mean, a second or third meeting, phone call, uh, in-person meeting, you start peeling the onion back a little bit, letting them know that you might know a little bit more than they think you know. Um, and then you just really start to, to, br- to bring it on. And then like in our case, we go out and speak publicly, you put decks out there and you say, here's why you're fucking wrong. Oh, excuse my French. Um, so eventually they know that you kind of know what you're talking about. But the point is, um, we were speaking to one of these traders who there was more uranium than he ever can do to where the conversation Two weeks ago was, um, yeah, no, spots, spots very thin, which was, Tim and I laughed. Uh, we were uh, texting each other, laughing, saying, okay. Uh, and then it was followed by, well, what do you think of the uranium reserve? Um, you know, if, if they, uh, you are energy and energy fuels, they could produce an extra million pounds. Um, maybe, maybe, could they? Uh, and then what about, uh, you know, that Brazilian phosphate plant and that's going to come online in three or four years for a couple of million pounds? Seriously, right? And and I said, like, you're kidding, right? This is what you, this is the best you got? This, this, was, you, this went from being a mountain of oversupply to now you're worried about the U.S., whether or not these guys produce a million pounds in a market that's got a 35 plus million pound deficit, right? So 
that's the realization that you start to see. But you don't see that unless you talk to, you have a baseline, you talk to people, and then you realize whether it's this person or whether it's the fuel buyer you've spoken to, all of a sudden the epiphany comes. Whether back in the prior cycle, it was a fire, it was a flood, it was a misshipment because of a, a transportation problem, it was a technical issue at a mine. Today, it's COVID, right? That's the, that's the eye-opener for them. Um, and here we are. But, but at the end of the day, for us, it's risk-reward. What causes the price of uranium to go down versus what requires it to go up? And, and we'll take that trade all day long. Yeah. And I like your impersonation. I like that. Keep that up. Um, <laughs> Dude, we're so, you, you get so exhausted from talking to some of these people. Very, you know, again, nice people. But when you're talking to them, you just want to bang your head against the wall sometimes. Yeah. So, because what you don't, what, what you realize when you do these deeply cyclical industries, what you realize is um, people have such strong opinions with so little work behind it. And it's only because they draw on their most recent experiences. And that's, that's, that as an investor, taking the other side of that is truly a gift. Not, not you're gifted to do it, but they're giving you a gift. Yeah, definitely the, uh, you know, uh, really encourage the audience to go after CDR, go after, you know, CD, look at the, the NI43101 documents, spend some time. It's going to take thousands of hours and tens of thousands of pages, uh, ASX filings. They go way back. Uh, lots of, lots of stuff out there. And, you know, the other thing too, is I think the audience needs to understand is, look, you guys aren't going to share information on an interview, just like, nor will I all information and, and there's stuff that's just private. So, that's just how it goes. Well, well um, yeah. I mean, and, and, and some people have said, oh, uh, he works for his investors. I was sorry. I, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, if that's, there's certain things that are proprietary. Uh, if that, I've, if I've that's said a, this in the past as well on, on another uh, program. And, and, you know, to encourage people to use some of these programs and podcasts and interviews as jump off points, you know, bring your pen and paper when someone says something that maybe perks your interest or something that you may not have realized, make a note of it so you can go back and say, Oh, you know, let me go read your stuff. Let me go check out if 10 X has anything online. You know, it's, it's that type of intellectual curiosity that will help give you at least something beyond just the chitter chatter of, you know, news articles and things like that. Yes. Go look up some stuff. Go look at phosphate. Go look at these these other areas that are not so discussed, etc. Mike, you brought it up. You, you sparked my interest on this. Is you know when you come hungry and motivated like an investor like you guys into mm -hmm. this sector, isn't it just obvious that you guys would be much more motivated to understand something rather than someone that sits here that's been in the industry for decades that sells a subscription has no vested interest. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't that just be obvious that you guys would learn much faster? You would. Well, and also, Andrew, when you think about it, it's we have our capital at risk, right? So nobody, if you were sitting on the other side of the trade, now I can't tell you the resistance that we get. When Tim and I go to an industry conference, now pre-COVID, we were at all of them, and um, we're, we were asked by these governing bodies to, who have seen our analysis. You know, one of uh, one of the nuclear institutes. Our world, hey, we we have a different view of consensus. There's consensus out there, and and let us show you why we think it's BS, 
but wrong, right? Not saying that untoward, but wrong and, and, and steeped with inconsistencies and things that just don't make sense um, and things that were changed post facto. Um, and, and, and we presented to, to a, a room full of 200 people that buy uranium. Um, and said, hey, here you go. By the way, I know you think we're just kind of some guys, just Wall Street bad guys, which is what people think, right? But well, no, we've been here in the sector now for years and we're, we have a lot of capital at risk and uh, therefore we've done the work. And, 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 and this organization thinks and we've showed them what we've done and they've given us the bully pulpit to come here and, and talk. And you can believe us or not. And we lay out a story and you lay it out for them. And, and what do you hear? Yeah, <laughs> these guys think they know more than we do. Um, no, um, we're showing you that there's inconsistency in the work that you have and that you're getting that's helping you inform your decisions. And it's ticked and tied, right? None of this is ours. This is, we've spent 20,000 hours, I don't make that up, analyzing certain consensus numbers and here's why they don't make sense and if you don't open your mind to that when you get run over good for you because you deserve it right mm -hmm. now there are some that are open-minded and will say okay that's great thank you can we pick your brain we get inbound phone calls but way more than not do can Tim and I walk around one of these conferences after having done that and people put their head down when they walk by us. <clears throat> now, every once in a while you get a guy <clears throat> that comes up to us uh, and he'll probably be mad for me saying, well, I won't say his name, but he's a fuel buyer and I do know he's active on Twitter. And <clears throat> he, he tracked down Tim and me and Art and Adam at Segra at, at some country bar and said, hey, can I talk to you guys? I'd love to pick your brain and, and I'd love to share with you my thoughts. And you know what? When you read his stuff, he's so smart and he's so ahead of the curve and he gets it. But that's not most of them. Most of them are really smart. We have shit ton smarter than, than me. Probably Tim, but maybe not. But, <laughs> yes. but, yeah. <laughs> but, but the point is, Andrew, they're not curious. And why? This, if, if in, in all my years of investing, this has been by far the biggest eye opener I've ever seen. I, you know, I was always kind of drilled. What's the power of incentives? And you hear it like, yeah, how's the guy, what's the guy's pay structure? You know, the CEO, does he get options? What is it? Is it driven by cash flow or is it driven by revenue? What, how much of it is driven by stock price? Whatever it might be. This takes it to such an order of magnitude different is what are the financial incentives of the people in the marketplace, Right. The guy buying the uranium, he does not get one extra penny if he bottom ticked it. It just doesn't happen, right? The, the, we know of a fuel buyer who saved his utility a ton. And fortunately for that utility, this is a very bright, thoughtful person who wanted to save the ratepayers money. And he went out and made some really smart purchases, but doesn't really participate in the financial upside of that. And he's unique. What you, and, and what that leads to, they don't get penalized for they don't get rewarded for, for for doing that work that saves a fortune but they get penalized uh if they have to go if they don't get penalized if, if they have to pay up as long as the peers are doing it and you're like wow 
I, that's something I can't even remember seeing. And then as you start working within this cycle and start talking to people, again, nice people, smart people, just different incentives. And, 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 and when you, when you take different incentives that don't motivate to actually figure out what the real numbers are, because it's okay to go along to be along, and, and you marry that up with kind of an attitude is, you know what, I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm, I've got a really fancy degree. And what could these people possibly know? What could they tell me? And, and even worse, even better, I'm not going to ask them. Yeah, I get, I get that. I get that they put up all these numbers, but they're just Wall Street guys. What do they know? They're, they're not, they're outsiders, right? Yeah. Again, we're not building a nuclear power plant. We're looking at supply and demand. And we're sitting there and spending 20,000 plus hours analyzing what those numbers were back at the last time this happened. And, and that's all it is. Like none of this is complicated. It's just yeah. time consuming. Yeah. Country bars and non-cash flowing uh, companies sitting in their chairs and uh, collecting the triple P program in the States. Okay. Let's move on here. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to get back to the screen and, and pick it up here just a little bit. Uh, Cause I, I know you guys, this time's valuable. Hopefully we can get some more out of you here as we keep going. But Tim, um, yep. spot market depth as indicated in 2020 chemical buys a few pounds, price rises on some light volume thoughts on trying to buy big volumes while walking around in a waiting pool. I think it's going to be tough today. Um, <clears throat> look, the, the market is just illiquid uh, right now. It's it's a, it's a little tough to purchase stuff. It's tough to sell stuff um, due to some of the uh, uh, not a lot of RFPs into the market right now. It's the very beginning of the year. We typically see some of the activity increase on the U308 side. Um, you know, it may, maybe we get a little bit of a pickup in RFPs. Uh, where the utilities go out and request uh, for proposals, um, uh, you know, maybe end of Q1, maybe begin of Q2. Who knows? You know, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball on that. But typically they begin to pick up uh, a little bit more activity. And because of that, uh, people need to understand that, you know, there, there's a lot of people throw things around about, you know, what is a carry trade? How does that work? Well, if traders are winning carry trades, they do tend to generate spot activity. I mean, some have offtake agreements where they can fulfill RFPs if they win them, uh, whereas others, or uh, even if some do have a, an off-market uh, uh, agreement to take pounds in every month, they might have to go into the spot market to secure pounds for that carry trade. So carry trades really just try to help link up this mismatch in supply and demand. Basically, a utility saying, hey, I need some supply. I don't want to buy it and take it into my account today. I want to do it, you know, maybe 6, 12, 18, 24 months from now. And, and traders do facilitate that transaction. So it, it does tend to generate some spot demand. So because there's been a lack of RFPs, you know, they have you know, needed to come into the spot market and do do stuff. Um, so, you know, yes, the market's a touchy liquid today. Uh, I don't expect this to exist forever as, as kind of the market transactions pick up here. Um, but time will tell how that goes. Uh, the other part of that conversation, I think, is what's going on in the fuel cycle. I think one of the big misnomers and one of the big mistakes people make in this sector is being so focused on quote unquote uranium, U308, without really understanding what is conversion, what is enrichment, and what does that fuel cycle look like? Because when we look, you know, when we go from U308, it's got to be converted into something called the UF6. 
and then that UF6 has to be enriched. Well, there's ricochet effects up and down the fuel cycle based on the dynamics in these markets. And so if you're a utility, you're always going to look at your EUP first, because at the end of the day, you just care about the enriched product. And you're going to work your way up the fuel cycle from EUP to UF6, which is the conversion component, and then back to U308. And due to the oversupply, it was oversupplied across the fuel cycle. It wasn't just U308. It was uh, uh, because the Japanese went offline in 2011. And as their contracts rolled off, they weren't buying a lot of conversion. They weren't buying, uh, you know, you know, doing a lot of new SWU contracts. So it created overcapacities all along the fuel cycle. So all of that excess supply needed to be worked down. And we're there. We're, we're already past peak underfeeding, so there's less EUP out there. There's way less UF6 out there. In fact, if you're a utility and need to go buy some UF6 today, you're going to have to go to a producer. You're going to have to go to a converter to get that stuff. I, I don't really think there's any being held, certainly in, in big pounds in any way, shape, or form by intermediaries, by financials today. Um, and so what, why am I saying all this? What I'm saying is utilities are going to go sop up excess supply further down the fuel cycle first and they've been doing that for two you know one two three four years we've seen conversion prices re-rate from four dollars and fifty cents a kgu to you know it's 20 21 22 today because these bottlenecks in conversion continue to exist uh so there's less all that excess uf6 has been sucked down and so finally we're to this point where we can move into and finally get into really the, 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 the bones of it, which is the U308 market, because all this stuff further down the, the fuel cycle has been sucked down. And that's kind of where we are today. So yes, we do think activity will pick up in the U308 market. Um, it has to, um, well, maybe it doesn't have to per se, but it, we think it's definitely going to, because at the end of the day, conversion and enrichment are just services. And that's what's important for people to understand. But you ultimately need to get the, the feedstock U308. And we're kind of at the final stop where we suck down the EUP, underfeeding, we're past, we're well past peak underfeeding uh, at the enricher stage. The converters are, are I mean, Converdine's still down. The, the French are, uh, there's a temporary shutdown at their Malvasi plant today. Uh, so that's the first stage of the French conversion. And then it goes to uh, their main plant, which is having, you know, continuing to ramp up and slowly ramp up. You know, they've had some issues there. So we're kind of to that final stage where, okay, now we've got to start paying attention to the U308 market in a much more uh, concentrated way because we can't buy U308 uh, in a UF6 form very easily anymore. We can't just go out and get EUP willy-nilly. So we do think over the next you know, 6, 12, 24 months, there'll be a lot more attention paid to the U308 market because any other form has been sucked down in a major way. And Tim, uh, as SWU prices rise, what happens to the incentive to underfeed? Well, I mean, I think already we already know. I mean, at the end of the day, enrichers don't, you know, their main business model is not to underfeed. Uh, th that was born out of necessity due to Fukushima, uh, where within the specific lens of an enricher's world, you know, they're not going to get rid of centrifuges uh, because they've already made huge fixed capital expenditures to get them up and running. So they're just going to underfeed if that capacity is there. But we know that they're signing new contracts. They're getting back to their primary business model, which is to fulfill SWU contracts, separate work units. And that leads to less underfeeding, which leads to less EUP on the market 
And if they're re-enriching tails, that leads to less uh, U308 on the market. So we believe we are well past this peak underfeeding phase. It's being reduced. It's continuing to be reduced. It will. This will continue to happen. And uh, we know this because swoop prices are rising. And and let, let's just you know let me just say this as well on the services side the suppliers have a better ability to control the market pricing a little bit just because the supply base is a lot more concentrated. There's only a handful of enrichers in the world. There's only a handful of converters in the world relative to U308 suppliers where it's just a little bit more of a fragmented market. Um, so they do have an ability to kind of swing the market around in their favor and they're doing that. Um, you know, we've seen swoop prices trough at $34 uh, a KGU, and I, I think spots 52 bucks today. Uh, Long-term prices have moved up from the mid-low 30s to uh, you know 56 bucks or so today. Thereabouts that that are the published prices. Uh, conversion has moved from 450 to 20 to 22 dollars, depending on location. Um, so we know that these transitions are happening. And and just to link it back to the earlier stuff Mike was talking about, when people aren't paying attention to the details, when people aren't digging into the guts of this market and just looking at, you know, staring at the spot price of U308, you are going to pick up none of this. So there's a lot of stuff happening under the water that you're not seeing at the surface. Yeah, Tim, and, and uh, well said. And I want to want to bring this back to you for a moment. Um, you know, an assumption here. Let's let's just say the swoop prices are at $100 plus sometime in the future. Does that happen, number one? And, and if it happens at that time, what does the market for equities and the uranium price look like here? That's, I guess, you know, a multi-million dollar question, right? Um, look, you know, I, I don't know where the swoop price goes, you know, at, you know, whether it goes back to, you know, 90 or $100. I think um, if you're getting into the mid-60s, mid-70s, that's at least uh, a, a much more sustainable price for enrichers. Um, does it mean that it overshoots? You know, maybe, maybe not. You know, I, I, I don't know if I can really say it's going to go to 100 or not go to 100. I think we do need to grind to a little bit more of a sustainable place and it'll be a slowly rising market in, in the SWOO market. Um, and interestingly, uh, we, we're learning more now that as prices of these separative work units rise, utilities are more and more incented to go and secure more because they do see that it's rising and that maybe supplies and capacities are a bit tighter than they realize. Uh, but I can tell you, if SWU is going to, you know, theoretically, let's say SWU goes to 100 bucks a kgu. I mean, that's going to mean that they're also buying. They're going to need to be buying a lot of U308 to fulfill those future SWU contracts. You're not going to buy services if you're a utility and then not ultimately buy the feedstock. And, and where the equities go, you know, who knows? You know, they would obviously be higher. You know, how much higher, you know, is anybody's guess. I think Mike left us for a moment, and, and I think he's back I'm now. Back. But, uh, but you know, look, is there any is there any clear estimate? And I'm not asking you guys to provide exact numbers or any any proprietary information. But uh, where do you guys see mobile inventory here at this point? Maybe a ballpark. And uh, to complete the audience question, um, and again, I, I think we've answered it in another way here. But uh, you know, why isn't long term or spot moving yet with all the expected new demand and of course the supply side destruction? Well, I think that they're you know active in securing SWU contracts. They're active in sorting out this bottleneck in, in the conversion market. I mean, you know, you you, do, you just still don't have uh, Metropolis running Converdine, uh, that plant in Springfield or in Illinois, Springfield, Illinois, I think, right? Not Springfield. 
uh, wherever it is in Illinois, is um, uh, Metropolis, Illinois, my apologies, uh, it is still down. Utilities are worried about this, that the that Converdine is still down. Is it going to come back? You know, do they have enough contracts in hand, long-term contracts signed in hand to, to bring this plant back? You, you know, we, there's some issues in, in the French facilities that are continuing to, you know, a temporary shutdown now at one of them and the other one's continuing to be ramped up. Uh, you know, that's a big bottleneck. You know, they, they've got to make sure, hey, if I'm going to buy U308, can, can I get it converted? Well, when's, how long is that going to take? Uh, when can I get it? You know, is there available UF6 uh, stocks that I can buy above ground now? Where, where is that? So they're looking at each step of the supply chain. And quite frankly, the, the conversion bottleneck is a problem right now. I and mean, we see what prices have done. You know, they've ticked back up. I mean, I'm surprised that they ticked back up, quite frankly. I thought that, hey, they would hang out at 18, 20 bucks. But because of the continued shutdown in Illinois, the, some of the kind of continuing problems with the French facilities, that, uh, th that, that's been a main focus of theirs. So again, U308 is the last place that they're going to go because you can find U308 in other forms. Um, and they're just trying to work through those issues, I think, to, to some extent, while being cognizant of their feedstock U308 needs in the future. Right. You know, certainly to the audience question, there's discussions behind the scenes, definitely, but there's nothing happening on the spot of the long term market well, it, as it, far it, as uranium goes. Uh, the, the question should be asked the other way. Uh, it, it comes down to do they have enough supply to handle what they need in the future? Um, it, it, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Right. Because, OK, you're sitting there and you're reading headlines and not actually somebody's not diving in and doing the work. Um, so, of course, nothing's happening. Um, Tim just laid out what's happening underneath the surface. But also ask yourself the question, um, if there was all if there was excess inventory out there and there's nothing happening and the utilities aren't in there stepping up in the spot market buying. How come it's how come people aren't shit in the bed and spitting it out all over the place if there was excess supply? They would be. And, and, and that's not happening. Right. So it's, you know, price, stare at price, focus on fundamentals and not stare at the price um, is what yeah. is what we would say. At least that's what we do. We could be completely wrong, by the way, but that's what yeah. we do. And, and again, the staring at the price thing in uranium versus other markets, this is, again, another point that makes uranium so unique because there is not a real futures market with lots of notional value being traded every day because there is not a really active physical market with uh, end users. Uh, financial traders, uh, financial speculators, day-to-day -day, I'm talking, in this market relative to other commodities people are used to looking at, you're just not going to get that day-to-day quote-unquote price discovery. You're just not. I mean, it's just this is how this industry, how this ecosystem works. So if you're looking at price to tell you, well, U through eight price isn't moving so clearly, this is you know a really oversupplied market. I mean, that's just a very superficial and quite frankly incorrect way to look at it. You've got to understand the nuances of it in the context of who's buying and selling, uh, who's literally there, do they have risk capital, do they not? And and this goes back to a point that Mike and I talk about a lot is that people today are too um, reliant on their screens. They're so used to getting information from prices because of electronic trading and the girth of 
speculators out there in the futures markets and the stock markets that they think every market is like that. And it's not. You really need to understand the plumbing of the market, which is why we repeatedly say this, that you have to understand the guts and the underbelly of the market. You have to understand who's literally there, who are the trading houses, who are the end users, who are the people who can come in and do things and understand how these mechanisms work. Because if you don't, you're going to look at price and not understand what's actually happening. Such a good right. point. And, and, and Andrew, you know, a market implies functioning. It, a market implies that it's relatively functioning. The uranium market is a disaster. It is broken. It's dysfunctional. It, the cohorts that play in it are just, they're, they, they don't, they're not financially incentivized. They're everything about the uranium physical market is a train wreck. And that is beautiful to us. It, I, I can't explain to you how inefficient it is, how at times you could see come month end how the prices start to drop off because some people have offtake agreements and a couple of traders want to drop the price a little bit, right? Okay, game, got you get it. You get it. They're playing around a little bit. But stuff happens all the time. But when you... Under, when you're in this and talking every day, there are, Tim and I don't pay any attention to the day-to-day -day movements of this stuff. It's just, it's not important because, yeah. uh, you know, are there more, like right now, you, utilities are really focused on keeping things operating. And, and we know they're having behind the scenes discussions and they're battling it out with prices, but they're not, they haven't been active in the spot market for several months. Okay, well, if if you had, like I said just a few minutes ago, if you had a lot of excess supply or any excess supply, the price would be dropping like a rock. And it's it's not because why? And and why? Because you have to know the traders don't have balance sheets. They they right. think about this. They can't. There's no risk capital in the split in the place. They, they right, and people they, come with a superficial view and they say. If the supply dynamics were so good as you claim them to be, or the SD is so good that you claim them to be, why isn't the market moving? And what the the the, the flaw in this thinking is that they're conflating the day-to-day -day yes. supply that comes to the market with the day-to-day -day demand that comes to the market versus the structural fuel consumption versus supply and like a more macro view. So if, if Sometimes I'll see people say, well, you know, the spot market went down 25 cents today, but aren't we in a huge deficit? Like this, this is, this isn't working. This, this, this thesis is obviously not working. And those are two completely separate concepts because day to day, the, the structural supply and demand of this market is not going to be reflected in the spot price. It's good because again, the intermediaries have to have a view every day. Oh, we're getting some offtake. Should we sell today? Should we not? Yes. Should we sell it next week? Is the market going to be 25 cents higher next week? That's what they're thinking about day to day. And there are yeah. always, uh, Andrew, always some of those pounds in the market. When the market was at $137, there was 20, 30 million pounds in the spot market. One would think, well, how could that be? There's no pounds available. Because some producers are lower cost. Some producers don't give a crap about profits, they have a little bit left over and they're going to put it into the spot market, right? So as the market's transitioning from one where it's traditionally has always been because there's no substitute for the commodity, it's been a market driven by production economics, um, Yeah. right? And then when Fukushima happens in periods of excess supply, it's, it's simply a market for surplus disposal. 
And then eventually, you know, the curve has to move back to driven by production economics. And that, yep. that's driven by where inventory levels are. And when you look around and you do the math, you ask about mobile inventories, they're, they're a little below normal, right? It's yep. just now, right? So, so when, and then you don't have these secondary supplies, the underfeeding is slowed down. Um, there's a confluence of events where you're saying, okay, but as that market is transitioning and there's still a few pounds in there, that recency bias from that utility buyer who says, you know, normally, all right, I know my contracts are up, but I had all this carry trade stuff out there. So I'm going to go in and just top, top up again for a year. And so, well, what might've been out there at 15 million pounds a month, 10 million pounds a month, 5 million pounds a month, that gets harder and harder to find. And then it's just one, it's one thing. You never know what that one thing is that triggers somebody to panic. And then next thing you know, boom, it, it, it's, it's up. Or on the back end, somebody's signing a long-term contract and you're not going to know about it until you see somebody's quarterly report. So all these things could, could happen. Um, but what, what it, it's being positioned because of supply and demand. That's how we look at it. Again, we could be totally wrong, but that's our view of the world. Yeah. This sector specifically is conventional rotary dial. I mean, pick up the telephone. That's that's where you're going to get your most info. Uh, yeah. and, and really, it's rinse and repeat. When you talk about the cycle, talk about the oversupply, back Fukushima, et cetera, it's rinse and repeat here. And it's going to happen again, of course, in a, in a similar rhythm and fashion. And then the other thing too, Mike, just real quick on, on wrapping up here on the screen and then also just on mobile inventory, would you like to give a ballpark figure on what you guys see as mobile inventory? At this no, point? no, we can okay. do no, no. Okay. No, we, we say a couple of years, right? A couple of years U.S. No, because then you know why? Because Bob in Topeka somewhere is going to sit there and, 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 and it's going to lead up to 87 direct messages that say, oh, is it t t t this million or that million, a few million? I thought you said that yesterday. Come on. Like we've given enough out there. It's our view. Yeah. Go look at the decks of what our view is of inventory. It's a couple of years here around in the U.S. It's three years there, right? And on the margin... On the margin, it's 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 at or below, depending on where what utility it is. Versus when you had a lot of supply, you had five years of supply. You know, four and a half, right. five. So that's the that's the thing, right? Hey, and, here's, no, a, here's a little quick amusing story about. Oh, this must have been a solid year ago, maybe almost a year and a half ago. In a kind of. By the way, nothing year. against Topeka. I like Topeka, so I didn't. Know <laughs> um. You know, and as it kind of bleeds into the trade action uh, discussions is, you know, over a year ago, I remember joking, half joking slash half serious with Mike saying, you know, the, the 232 working group is going to bleed into the Russian suspension agreement. And I guarantee you people are going to be complaining out there that, oh, once again, utilities had an excuse not to do anything. And this was a year before the Russian suspension agreement happened because the writing was on the wall that some of these trade action things were taking too much time, to, not too much time, but just it was slowly happening. Um, and some investors were getting very frustrated with that. And we could see that it was going to bleed into the RSA because the utilities needed to understand you know, the, the U.S. utilities and other utilities wanted to understand what the rules of the road were going to be for U.S. utilities and where and how they could secure U308, conversion, EUP, those sorts of things. So, and I say that because things change. Markets are a living, breathing thing. And we certainly didn't predict, you know, Section 232 and the working group or anything like that. That, that happened, you know. Uh, after we got into the space. So you've got to just deal with the cards that are in front of you and say, okay, here's the cards that I've been dealt. This is what's happening. Where can we go from here? Instead of saying, oh, 
well, you know, the utilities are just doing absolutely nothing. I mean, they're not doing nothing. They're doing a lot of things. They're running their plants. They're focused on various parts of the fuel cycle. So it's just a reminder that things do change in markets, shockingly enough, and things do change in the uranium market. That could be hiccups. They could speed things up. They could slow things down. And you just have to recognize where all that fits into the, uh, you know, your view and thesis and, uh, and, and market view. Yeah. yeah, it's tough to translate because a lot of the stuff you don't ever see come across um, any any conventional channels, if you will. You have to you have to dig a little deeper to see where that goes and and all the debits and credits that go with that. But you know, you guys mentioned it earlier. So much so much is important with regards to the work and and writing checks and having capital at risk is so important to, in my view, motivating the proper the proper research yeah. and investigation. Um, yeah. Question. Real, real quick, finish, Tim, finish for us on the trade actions. Um, I suspect that there's probably no more trade actions to go here. And then also maybe just speak briefly about the bank research possibly increasing here. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I, we certainly never predicted Section 232 and, and you know, all that. So knock on wood, literally here, I'm going to, um, you know, maybe something does pop up. I, mean, I, don't, I don't see anything on the horizon, but you just don't know, uh, you know, and, and so you have to be cognizant of that. But um, nothing majorly specific that I can foresee. But again, I never predicted Section 2. I didn't even know what a Petition 232 was until I read about it in January of 2018. Um, you know, now I'm very familiar with it. But uh, so, yeah, you know, those are the main ones for sure that were absolutely out there. We, we're certainly behind those now or the, those those items are behind us. Um, and it, it appears we have a lot of road ahead. And and I guess that leads into the, the bank research. You know, there's been a lot more interest coming back to the space. You know, when it, when a sector, when a commodity sector is in a major bear market, uh, there's not a lot of uh, uh, banking business to be done. There's not a lot of mergers and act, you know acquisitions you know happening. Banks are going to kind of lose interest, right? That you know they they have their own incentives too. Now they're seeing that oh okay we're we're in supply deficits here. Uh, you know producers are telling us that we need to have higher incentive prices to bring this market back in balance. They're figuring the story out just like we did. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. Um, it takes speaking to people uh, for months and months on end to get your head around it. They're clearly beginning to, and their supply demand forecasts are doing exactly what we expected them to do, which is show uh, larger and more sustained supply deficits as we arrived to a few years ago. So I think it's bringing just a uh, uh, more uh, professionals to the space, more eyeballs to the space. They're letting their clients know, hey, there's 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 some smoke here. There could be some fire here soon. So let's take a look at this. Is this a potential allocation for you, given your view of the dollar, of commodities, of where other equity and asset you know classes are relative to this? Because just like we think, you know, this is this this idea of uranium and you know investing in uranium is, is kind of alpha in a bottle so if you're you're a large if you're a fund of any kind you can allocate small amounts of capital to this space that's a very small portion of your fund that can create real alpha for you yeah no certainly it can move the needle significantly even if it's small uh mike talk about the current chinese view or tim uh and their continued effort to absorb global capacity, most recently with Kazataprom, the uh, Ortalic joint venture. Yeah, well, so, you know, the Chinese are um, obviously their major driver of nuclear power. Um, I think, you know, you've got the 14th five-year plan that will be more formalized coming in March, but 
um, there's no surprise that they've their goals are they want to be carbon neutral by 2060, and you're not going to get there unless you're building a a lot of nuclear reactors. You're just not going to get there any other way. Uh, it's got to be part of the conversation. So what what do they not have indigenously? They don't have um, much uranium production. They have a little, but not a lot. So they have to go and either uh, buy outright uh, mines, and they, Namibia has been a stopping point for them, or they make uh, investments in them. They've done that in Canada, uh, and now they're doing it in uh, in Kazakhstan. But um, you know, people will look at their uranium levels and take a very Western view uh, of, of you know they they might have four-ish hundred million, and and maybe they use forty-five million. Uh, you know, they'll use not now, but they'll get to. 50 million pounds, let's say, or 45, 50, depending on how many reactors they build, we can come up with all different numbers. But, you know, you could, one could look at it and say, oh, that there's there's nine, 10 years of inventory versus like two to three for the for the West. Well, well when you talk to people within China that, you know, compared to other commodities, that's it's a rounding error in terms of years. They don't think in terms of years, especially in a commodity they don't control. They don't want to be part and part, they don't want to be uh, held hostage by anyone. So um, we expect them to be regular purchasers of, of both the commodity and and acquiring assets going forward because they 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 are not going to let uh, these inventories down. And these inventories are they're they're not ever seeing the light of day. They're in the they're in government stockpiles. They're sitting down and 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 they're not being used. Um, so yeah, China will be a major player, and it's just the fact. The reality is, is they recognize what what uh, what that the, that it's, it's enormous. It's baseload nuclear power is a workhorse. It's clean. It's safe. It's here, and and it's going to be part of their mix. And as the Walong One is is proved to be working now, it you're going to see them become more of an exporter of of, of reactors around the world, just like the Russians are. Yeah, and they look they're playing the long game, right? You know, this is they're building reactors that are planning to run for 60, 80 years, right? So if you have a one gigawatt reactor and you're going to plan to run it for 60 years, you know, that plant's going to need roughly 30 million pounds of U308 over its lifetime. And, you know, that sounds like a big number, but of course it's over, you know, 60 years. You know, if it's an 80 year life, you're talking maybe 40 million pounds. So a 400 million pound stockpile, it's just not a lot for them. Okay. They are and when we speak to the people we talk to over there, like it's like it's laughable that the West thinks that way. That's not how we think. You know, it's just not not the way we're thinking about it. So. And, and similarly, you know, you know, another state-owned, you know, Arano, you know, they're looking for, uh, you know, exploring, you know, in in Uzbekistan a little bit. They recently announced that they're going to try to do some exploring in, in Greenland. Uh, look kudos to the Chinese for playing the long game and kudos to them for buying assets when they don't have to overpay for them right now. You know, that's, that's called being smart. <laughs> okay. Relative to many other people in the world who are doing this just in time game that always ends in tears. Or, or <laughs> wait, or, or you're going to see a Western, uh, a big Western mining company come in at the top of the uranium cycle and pay a stupid price for some of these assets. Cause that's what they do. Versus the, the Chinese saying, you know what, let's buy some stuff here cheaply. So, yeah, 
No, look, and that's absolutely right. I, I think to some degree uh, that folks uh, in Europe and North America have gotten lazy, fat, and happy. And uh, yes, look, look we, we've certainly gotten some reminders here. And if you look at the natural resource sector as a whole, China has a view of decades. Their view is decades forward. Absolutely. And you, can, yep. you can see that with their accumulation of copper, gold, basement, yep. all the base metal stuff, lots and lots but, of stuff, not just uranium. So it's really fantastic. And you know what's funny, Andrew, is we, Tim and I always say this and we talk to some friends who do the type of investing we do. It's, it's you know, when 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 people are, are driven by a recency bias and an opaque, funky, bizarre, broken market like uranium, they will look at it and and um, and say, oh, well, there's X number of pounds here. Or they look to all these reasons. But then as soon as the for whatever that is, whatever tricks the uh, triggers the market to go up and, you know, there's a trigger and it's boom, it's it's on now. The, all the participants have decided now you're in a raging bull market. Then they look at that and go, my gosh, well, geez, the Chinese only have 400 million pounds of uranium, right? It's, it goes from, it, it, it will go from it being an overhang to it being under. It's the same thing when people are looking at their disc, uh, discounted cash flow analysis or on these projects, what, what's a, what they, what they want to assign massive uh, discount rates. Now when the market's ripping, they'll they'll, they'll cut that in half and say, is that too high? I feel like that's too high because you can, right? So it's it's just, it's right. It's this recency. It's and, and just as like kind of a funny past anecdote, um, I, I'll never forget this. It was fall 2004. I believe WTI oil prices took out $40, you know, nominal. And everybody, I, I was a freshman in, in college and I was taking an econ course. And I distinctly remember we were all talking in the class and everyone's like, wow, like oil prices took out $40. And what we all figured out, you know, a year or two later and all of Wall Street did was that China was buying the crap out of commodities. And so everyone will say, man, if I knew that they were really doing that, man, you could have made so much money in commodities, yada, yada, yada. Well, here's your chance. Here's China on a massive build out of nuclear who's going to need massive amounts of uranium. So if you if you know you're looking at that analog back in you know 2004 to 2008 in the run up to the financial crisis, well here's your chance to play that just in uranium with China. So, you know, I don't know why you're standing on the sidelines. <laughs> well, yeah, I know and, and uh, Tim was doing both back then. He was also not only a contributor class, but he was also planning the parties as well. Uh, <laughs> that is true. That's actually true. So I want to move to the discussion part of this. And, and uh, as we continue through the stuff here, and, and I appreciate you guys hanging with us here and there are lots of good conversation points. Um, but Mike, yes or no question here. Is the Sachem Fund open to new high net worth today? No, we, we, we are closed. We have we are at our capacity. Okay. And Tim, is the uranium... Close meaning, by the way, Andrew, not to interrupt, but close meaning we're not taking on new investors. We're, we have, we are fully, you know, fully invested, but, but we're at our, our, our stated capacity. Understood. So, yeah. And Tim, is uranium the only focus of the entire Sachem Cove Partners Fund? Yes. Mike, if there was a near-term March 2020 type event in the broad markets, which spilled over into a, say, a 50% plus decline in uranium equities. Would the fund seek new capital to cash up and deploy on further accumulation? That's a good question. Uh, consider it. I, I mean, uh, that would be a gift. If yeah, So, yes. Um, but, yeah, probably. But I, I don't, we don't talk about what our strategy is. It's, But, um, you know, uh, if if you know if you had a macro event again you you have to look at everything at the time when it occurs but um 
you know, our fundamental thesis has never been stronger in our view. And, you know, we laid it out for our investors in our, in our letter just that we just sent out. And yeah, so we're in our highest conviction. And we, like we said in the letter, we expect there to be air pockets and there will be down months and sentiment shifts and whatever. Um, and we view those as opportunities. <clears throat> yeah. And Mike, the uh, besides Sagem client updates, of course, you guys aren't really engaged in the public as you used to. Like us, you don't really see the need to oversaturate because there is more other more important work to do that yeah. needs to be done behind the scenes. But well, we're, we're not that interesting. <laughs> and going going forward, well, the nice thing and back to your earlier comment, the nice thing about it is is when you have nothing further to say, it really speaks to the fact that, look, we've done the work. There's nothing else to do. Let's sit back and and, and focus on what needs to matter going forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't feel the need to have to defend a bull argument or a bull yeah. thesis in this market. You know, if, if people who are, you know, neutral or bearish have those views, you know, knock themselves out. They can talk themselves face, you know, until they're blue in the face. That's, you know, that's what they should be doing if they feel that and, and that's their views. But I don't feel the need to defend this uh, this bull thesis anymore. You know, enrichment has is recovering. Uh, conversion has recovered and still actually rallying right now. And and we're not in a bear market in the U308 market anymore. So I, I don't know what people are looking at. Right. If they, if they feel that way, if they're neutral or bearish. I know you can't divulge certain information here, but what areas of the market will you guys be focused on going forward? What will you be doing to drive market value? And will you be consulting with new entrant capital groups on the thesis? You know, we don't, it, it depends. We don't consult with anyone. Um, you know, just like as... I've been in the business for a long time, so you have friends who are investors that are, uh, you know, um, and they may want to get up to speed, um, and they'll give me a call and say, can you walk us through? Uh, you say, sure, and just give me, you know, you spend time as you would with any other friend. You get them up to speed on on the uh, industry. Uh, industry. Um, then there are some who are not, not, uh, not, uh, that we don't know, we're not friendly with, but they might be other professional investors. And we've seen uh, much more of an influx of that recently. Um, you know, it uh, depends who they are and it depends how they come across with us. If they come across as dickheads, they got no chance of it. And we've seen that, right? So um, if they come across as just humble, nice guys and they or ladies and they want to and they want to uh, just ask our view and, and not come at it with arrogance or whatever it might be, we're happy to share that. So it really depends. I mean, you know, we we had a uh, a call with uh, with a, a big fund last year, I think it was. That came on like gangbusters, like they knew what they were talking about, and it was clear they had no idea what they were talking about. And then I think within about 15 minutes, we pretty much told them that. So it's like anything else, right? Um, we don't we don't hold ourselves. We I, I have zero interest in consulting to anyone. We're not consulting to anyone. If people are cordial and they're nice and they want to spend time getting up to speed, we're happy to do that, to, you know, spend a little bit of time. If they're institutional investors, I can't do it with everyone that wants to call. But if, you know, but if somebody's got uh, somebody's got a lot of capital to put to work and they want to learn about it, you know, we're, we're happy to spend time, you know, getting them up to speed if, if that's what they want. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I, I like that approach. I think that makes sense. And we've gotten some arrogance over here in, in like form, as well as some converts, some that were, uh, yeah. didn't know. Didn't know, you know and actually, you know, Andrew, I think I want to make this point because people see Mike and I, whether it's on this podcast or maybe previously in public, we do have a lot of conviction. You know, we, we've done the work, you know, we continue to learn. We are students of this market every day. I try to learn something new in this market every single day, literally. 
We are not resting on our laurels in any way, shape or form. I'm willing to run through walls every single day as required. That's just, that comes with the territory. I'm too with old to said, run through walls. It hurts, but. Yeah. <laughs> with, with that said, what people don't see maybe is that, you know, if, if we're, you know, poking around, you know, it just, look, we're, we're you know, we're, this is what we do for a living. We obviously have interest in other markets. You know, we have our own capital, et cetera. So we talk about other markets internally and talk about different stocks and different stuff is what, what people don't see is I do not have conviction on things that I might not fully understand. The people don't see me asking tons of questions to people or poking around. But what you will never see me do in public is have conviction on something. I don't know what I'm talking about. And, and in this era, I don't know if it's social media, I don't know if society or humans have changed in the last, or maybe it's always been like this. I just see too many people with too much conviction without really understanding it. And that yeah, is like a massive pet peeve of mine. I, 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 that's a good point, Tim. Um, can you guys hear me? This thing just went out. Okay, yeah. better. Um, no, it's a good thing. You know, we are... Um, you know, it's funny, right? I, I see sometimes we get referenced to oh, uranium experts. We're not uranium experts. I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> do we understand the basics of u uranium mining? Yes. Do we understand the fuel cycle? Yes. Can we tell you how to convert uranium? Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, like as a, as generic as a, as a lay person as you could find, um, we understand the math and math, um, we math, but um, but you know, there's, it's, it's, it, when you come to an industry as an outsider, you want to stay that way and be viewed that way. And that's how we're viewed, right? When we go to these conferences, we know that, and, and I, I don't throw that number out lightly, the 20,000 plus hours, it's, it's that plus that Tim and I have spent diving deep and, and, and modeling and conversations. And again, we can always be wrong on certain aspects of it, on all aspects of it. We don't think we are, but it, at least it's with an effort that uh, laying it out in our own minds as to the best way we think we can surround it. But you get to to these things. And and like I said, you you go and speak at these conferences and, and these big organizations are willing to put you up as somebody that, that they respect. And yet it's for us to earn the respect of the people in the business that we still don't have it. <laughs> and we love that. Yeah, right? I don't the, even care. I actually, yeah, I the, like fuel, the fuel buyers, the... The the trade well the traders I mean they they know not to go there with us right they they try if they're going to have a supply demand discussion you know it's you know it's it's they're going to have both hands tied it's like they're fighting with both hands tied behind their back um, and, the, and the same thing the fuel buyers so many of them we speak to we speak to several of them but also several of them will just avoid us so you know uh, and but but that view of being an outsider is wonderful because they don't they don't they, we don't care if they, they respect us because ultimately, I, I think they, they, they clearly respect our analysis, but that if they, if they don't want to, uh, you know, chum up with us, that's fine. Uh, Cause we get access to wherever we want. Same thing with companies, you know, uh, we, 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 um, there, I don't know, 50 uranium companies. We speak to a handful of them now anymore. Why? Because I think, what, what many of them recognized early on is we can be real pains in the asses. Because if, if you tell us something and we're going to, next time we speak to you, we're going to hold you to that. And um, a lot of them, like I said, are putting lipstick on a pig. And we know enough to know we're, we're not just, you're not going to just 
pull the wool over our, our eyes. So, so how do they avoid that? They stay away. They stay away from that. Um, so, you know, there it's it's a fascinating um, it's it's fascinating. I think the biggest advantage we have is being viewed as 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 outsiders in in the sector. Um, we love that. Tim, would you agree with that? I mean, no question. I, I'm, I'm not even going to repeat it and be redundant because it's spot on, Mike. Well, look, sometimes it's 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 punishment. I, I suspect when when people have to talk to you, some people they look at it as punishment. <laughs> uh, so, well, look, Mike. I, you know, you mentioned you know mistakes, etc. Maybe being wrong. Uh, maybe maybe if you'd just like to share something there, and maybe Tim as well. I mean, is there a place you guys have been wrong, or maybe you can bring something up where you guys have made a mistake? Oh, yeah, God, well, you know, one one right off the bat for just from my side and our side, or I guess my side, is um, you know, I don't think we realized how reliant uh, the sector was um, just kind of on third-party consultants. Um, it was never a part of the thesis to go rip apart consultants' works, and not not you know, badly per se, but just having to spend so much time analyzing other people's works. I certainly, I don't think, you know, and Mike can comment on as well, that was just one area we, we didn't really forecast that we would be doing and spending so much time. Uh, so that would be a big one right off the bat for me. I I would, I, I agree with that. Um, that was not part of the, you know, we look at, you always look at a consensus number and, and as the, as the facts change, consensus numbers typically uh, when they're derived by Wall Street analysts, they will move up and down with the facts. Um, we didn't anticipate uh, as the facts were changing that consensus numbers didn't necessarily do that. They were, they were shaped a different way. Um, so that was surprising to us. And it wasn't until we really started diving in way well be, beneath what you normally need to, to dive into understanding consensus that we said, wow. Um, so that was, that was one thing. I, I think the other thing too is um the math is so compelling, and when you sit down with people, you know, most markets, when you have price speculators, when you have risk capital at work, you know, the, the businesses tend to run off of production economics. Um, I, I think if I had to say one thing I'd be surprised was was by how apathetic the industry participants are in this space. They, they can't outrun the math at all, and... And with where where secondary supplies and inventory levels are now, I mean, you're right there. I, I don't say is it, you know, I, I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying, oh, I think it's by next month. What are, you, are you serious? Like, serious? like really? Or, or is like, well, yeah, but by April, who knows? Um, it can, I don't know if it's a back half of this year or tomorrow. I have no idea. But they can't outrun where they are right now. So you're, you're, you're really close to them having to do something. But. I would have thought they would have flinched a little bit earlier than this, but they, they, they just, and, and COVID is a, is a part of that. So I, I appreciate that. But, but I used to think, uh, you know, Tim and I would say, you know, yeah, well, the balance market, the, the market balances, uh, you know, 60, 60 plus range, 65, pick a number, maybe depending on 70, who's full of shit on some projects or not, but around that, and you never really need to get much higher and you don't. Um, but you know, you see the behavior here, and you know the apathy leads to panic, and they could say anything they want. But history, this is human nature. This is human nature doesn't change in these cyclical industries. Uh, it's a it's a broken industry, 
people are scared shitless when prices start moving and, and they'll and they'll go chase it. Yeah, but, maybe one other one that we never forecast. And it took some time for us to figure out. And, and I've literally never heard this discussed ever. I've This has never been discussed publicly. I don't think ever that I've seen and I've searched high and low for it. When Converdine went down back, I mean, what was that? So late 17, 18, you know, in that area. Uh, when Converdine was out securing conversion, to do that, they would go and buy UF6 and then return the U308. And they wouldn't literally go break it down, but basically somebody would sell Converdine UF6 and Converdine would have U308 laying around and the amount of U308 equivalent in that UF6 is returned to the seller. Well, some of those, some of those people that took that U308 back in are, don't need the U308, so they were blowing it into the market. So this is back in the 2017, 2018 time period when there was more supply and it was just a total kind of, I don't know how you describe it, a freak accident or just one of those ricochet events where everyone's like, oh my God, all this conversion went down. And a ricochet event was people uh, getting U308 to lock in conversion and they were blowing it back into the market, which brought like some supply. You know, I never, we never forecasted that you know, when we came to the sector, but it was a one-off quirk and those inventories have been worked through. And now that we're on the other side of this, of all this pain, of all this, you know, headwind that we've, the market's faced, you know, all these headwinds are now turning into tailwinds. So that would just be one random one that, uh, you know, I've literally never heard talk about publicly before. Yeah, let me, let me, let me step in here and I appreciate that because that's a really good point. But Mike and Tim, both, either one of you, uh, specific companies, I don't want any names, but have you guys made a mistake with a specific company? I have. Well, Mike, you're the portfolio manager. <laughs> um, it's a good question. Have we made a mistake with a company just in terms of investing in them or taking big losses or, or what do you mean? Oh, well, Tim, uh, Tim, as far as that goes, I'm just saying basically, you know, look, it, it wasn't what it appeared to be. We switched and moved on. Uh, that yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Well, it's not, it's, it, you know, you, you start very small. Um, we always start very small. And you, you know, a company might be doing a financing and you'll give them a little bit of capital. And, and really, we've stopped doing that uh, for the most part because what we realize is these little tiny companies that you do that with, and you, we give them uh, X amount of dollars, which is an insignificant amount to our fund, but then they run around as though we're the biggest thing they have, right? So, um, and they use our name till there's no tomorrow. And next thing you know, people are saying we own it. We're like, what do you, yeah, we do, but it, it's a rounding error for us, but they use it as though it's a launching a pad to, to go raise capital on it. So, uh, we've done that, but, but as you put a little bit of capital in there, um, and you start to do the work, you start to do the story. And again, you get warrants. So you're willing to take a little bit of a flyer early on, and uh, a, a rounding error as a percentage of the fund, and then you start to do the work, you start to get a baseline for the management team, and then you realize that sometimes you're like, whoa, okay, we just checked with somebody who knew this project, and that project wasn't right, and um, okay, we're out, and and then you, you do it. Now, for our bigger core positions, um, we, f we feel like, you know, you can always be wrong. You never know what you're going to find in the future, but but you, you, you do it be by the time you get them to that you've done a lot of work on them and, and you hope for the best that you, you've not missed many things. Um, yeah. but yeah, early on, early on, definitely. Yeah. You're yeah. trying to figure out who the landscape is and who the, who the real, who the real companies are and who the, 
who the CEOs that are full of shit are, and there's more than a few. So yeah, it takes a while. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the uh, junior natural resource sector, no doubt. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> the perversion yep. goes deep, I can tell you. Yes, uh, it does. Mike, just just on this part of it, um, just as we go through here, there's kind of a maybe a kind of a two exit strategy thought here, but maybe you could just offer the audience, and I know this is sensitive, but just be vague. But how is the exit strategy for Sachem approached for this sector? And then lastly, will the Sachem close uh, fund be closed, or will it continue with other opportunities in the future? Um, it you know it's very it, it the buying's the easy part. That that's a no-brainer for us. Like in uranium, it was. Um, it's always the exit that's the hard part because you're then balancing um, when you're at when you're in a sector early, you're then balancing what other people are coming around to that you you already kind of know. Um, so we look at this based on fundamental valuation. What's the net present value of the project? Uh, what is the uh, how are people going to look at this on a multiple of free cash flow? Um, uh, there's also going to be a lot of people look at it um, in a lazier way that multi, you know, EV per pound in the ground, because <clears throat> that's easy. A lot of those pounds might not be worth anything, but but you know you look at it there, and then you and then there's the, that's the more science part of it, and then there's the art part of it, which is you know okay, people are just now wrapping their head around it, and like I was referencing earlier. All of a sudden, they're like, well, you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't use a 12% discount rate. Maybe we should use it eight, you know, seven, whatever, I'm making up numbers, whatever people are going to choose. Uh, or all of a sudden, they'll go back and point to the prior cycle, and all of a sudden, the multiples will become much higher. Um, and so, you know, and then there's just uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. People pile in, and you'll see the stories. And that's where we're, you know, we'll, we're, we'll gauge as to what the, promotional level is if we're fortunate enough to get there right first our thesis has to fully be correct so far it's it's playing out but if it's if it continues to be correct like we we hope and think it will be then it's a matter of you know adjusting as to where you are there's there's that portion of it where you look at it on certain names and say okay you know what we're it 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 it's at a point where it doesn't deserve to have this percentage position in our portfolio Maybe we should sell it down to a, a, a smaller size based on risk reward, right? Because it's position sizing, right? You still might like the company, but the upside might not be as much. So therefore, it should be a smaller position. Whatever company that is, whatever it, it's all, it's all valuation work. Uh, but then, then there is that FOMO, and that's the tricky part. You know what we we probably. Um, and we tell our LPs this, our, our investors. You know, we're probably the guys who are going to be more cautious than not. We, you know, we really try not to get caught up in the hype, but we have to be cognizant that whenever that time comes, you know, we think you're still in the first, second inning, but whenever that time comes where you're in the seventh or eighth, we have to recognize that for some people, that's the second or third inning to them. So you don't yeah. want to sell too early, but you don't want to have something that's completely not based on reality. Um, so... But again, and that will adjust as time goes. You'll see what happens. Where's the price of uranium go? That's a big part of it. We don't know. We, we, we think we know where it has to go, but where will it ultimately go? It's probably, we would, we would argue, based upon, uh, it probably goes higher than we think it needs to go, but, but who knows? Yeah, and it goes back to just, you know, playing the cards that you're dealt, right? You know, I mean, <clears throat> I, you know, I, when I approach the market day to day, I, I like to think of, you know, kind of 
for me, kind of a six to 12 month rolling view. So as you're rolling through time, you know, it just is always that six to 12 month forward view and what information is coming in, what's changed, what's new, what's sentiment like. And that's a lot of the art to it, right? So that's just kind of how I approach it and, and look, at, look at it and just, hey, what's changed? You know, uh, is the risk reward still there? Um, how have the stocks reacted? How has the physical reacted? What's going on in the fuel cycle? How does that continue to react? So it, it's all those pieces, just putting the puzzle together and uh, letting the picture tell you what's happening and, and, to, and to take whatever your value system is, whatever your views are, and, and go from there. Mike, and does the fund continue after this? Yeah, you know, it, it all will be that yeah whenever that time is who knows it you don't know whenever whenever the uranium in uh investment has gotten long in the tooth like all cyclicals can whenever that time is only to the extent that there's another interesting investment idea that has the same asymmetry i mean we'll keep our i would imagine i i mean i'll keep our own capital in there but i don't D deciding to run money for for others on the outside is really for us what's interesting is only when there's something that we think is asymmetrical and something where we think we offer um, an insight that is not available in, in the market a, a, you know a, a a variant perception and yep. and those are really hard to find you know you see a lot of guys who have really big trades and then they continue to think that they could keep doing it and that doesn't really happen um, yeah. You know, yeah. they're hard to find. And and to just to just go along, and, and, and I wrote this in our, our letter that I, we just sent out, was, you know, why do we invest in this style? Because, you know, investing in this, it, where people with much more resources than us, with, with armies of people, uh, you know, with tons of capital, uh, a lot more capital, of course, than us, um, uh, how are we going to get a competitive advantage over them? We're not. And oh, by the way, they don't have a competitive advantage over themselves because most of them underperform. So why play in the same sandbox as other people? We just go look in desolate hunting grounds, even to the point where the hunting grounds are such where many perceived value investors have gotten burnt. And it's, you know, the old once bitten, twice shy, where they, they thought they caught something, uh, they were really catching something in the early stages of a downturn. Then we become interested. So it could be, I don't know what that it could be, but we're always, you know, I mean, we, now, we're 24-7 uranium, um, but we always are poking our nose in at other things to see what's interesting to us. Yeah, and we have a lot of advantages being small groups, small capital, and also, you know, these big groups with these huge teams. Uh, sometimes I think that's actually a disadvantage just because of the noise of the group size. Um, Tim, talk about how Mike picked you up off the street. How, how did you guys meet? What happened there? We met... Uh... We actually met because of Twitter several years ago. Uh, someone in his town was tweeting that he was going to see the uranium bull or the uranium god, whatever it was. And at the time, I was I had been poking around the space myself, um, and I literally knew zero other people on Earth looking at uranium. And so, I, long story short, kind of figured out who he was. I reached out to him said, hey, I, I saw you're looking at uranium. I'm, I'm looking at uranium. I'm a physical trader. You know, there's something going on here. And there's a lot of blank spots that I have. Um, I've, I've only been looking at it for about six months. 
but something is interesting here. And we just kind of started a conversation, just started going back and forth with uh, looking at some stuff and just with no intent to start, you know, I had no idea that this was going to evolve into a fund. I, I was just investing my own personal capital. And uh, we just kind of started doing some research together. And one thing led to another where we were like, okay, there's like really something here. And given Mike's background with, uh, you know, being in the hedge fund world, he was like, hey, I think I want to, you know, go start a platform and a fund here. Would you want to join me? And I said, of course, there's something, there's a lot of smoke here. Um, let, let's see what we can do. And that's kind of uh, how it went. That's great. And Tim, uh, how important, you guys mentioned net present value. Uh, you know, we certainly use it here for, for multiple sectors, but how important is it right here? And as you guys know, net present value is, is zero for a lot of these companies at this stage. Um, yeah. But in your analysis of the sector equities and outside of that, maybe what's another meaningful metric that you guys like for this sector? Um. It's a good question. Well, kind of yeah, like yeah. Mike said, there's a couple of different ways we look at it. There's the lazy man's kind of just, you know, enterprise value to pounds or enterprise value to M&I. Um, you know, net present value is, look, one of, the, one of the tricky things about net present value, of course, is <laughs> it's really dependent on your inputs, right? Uh, depending on whatever your inputs are, you can kind of get whatever you want out on the other side. Um, so it, it is dependent on, you know, the discount rate, what prices are you using for, uh, uh received sales for the companies? Uh, what is their actual production, uh, schedule going to be? And, and what are their pounds like, you know, how much depreciation is involved? Um, so yeah, those are all important, um, metrics that we want to look at because we want to stay grounded. You know, we also have gone back and looked historically just at what things have traded at. You know, we've mapped out uh, going back to companies last cycle that were around, just taking a look at just as a, a baseline to see what were investors paying for uh, an EV to pound in the ground, an EV to M&I. Uh, were these companies generating cash flows at the time and what were investors paying for them? So, uh, you know, there's a couple different things that we look at from that angle, uh, both, you know, presently of what our inputs are to, to some of the models, as well as just historically um, where some of these companies have traded in the past. Yeah, no, that's that's good. And, and you know, for some of these companies, just a little bit of comedy, you can add the limousine and party metric to it as well. Correct, correct. The FOMO factor, as Mike likes to say. Yes. <laughs> just vaguely. And, and good points. Good points, Tim. Absolutely. There's all of those should be looked at. Um, and, and vaguely here, Mike, uh, maybe can you just mention the general, you know, Sachem strategy and general view of approach in terms of specifically just jurisdiction and maybe the company stage and how you guys have mixed up explorer developer producer yeah um i mean to the extent we are we're a large shareholder in a couple of companies so you could probably see you could look at the filings where we have to file on some of them um i won't talk about them but you could see um look we get we get we we get uh how there can be some wonderful exploration companies and there are some really smart natural resource investors that are far greater skilled at us because Tim and I are not skilled at, at finding exploration stage companies. Um, we, we do have geologists that we can consult with, but you know uh, the success rate is not great. But there are some that are really wonderful. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've never I've never met him, but uh, uh, Warren Irwin clearly had a wonderful call on NextGen right uh, early on before. He was predicting that 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 would happen. That's 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 not our knitting. That's not what we do. We, we the way we come at this, having over many decades looked at 
looked at natural resource companies, knowing what we're, at least what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Um, so it, it, for us, it's really being able to identify a mismatch in the macro at where we just, it, it's just the macro is, the consensus macro is dead wrong. And then how can we play that that's within our comfort zone and, and that works with how this cycle is, right? So we know that uh, how do we think it will happen when there are some mines on care and maintenance that don't require a tremendous amount of startup capital? to get back up and running that will be part of a contracting cycle, right? So there's, you know, Andrew, it's important like to put contracting in context. You know, people say, oh, so-and-so, they might be like, you might hear in the future, so or you might not, but, uh, or it might happen or it might not happen. So-and-so signed a contract for a long-term contract for 35 bucks a pound. Oh my God, they all need 50, it's 35. No, that means nothing. You don't care where the lowest cost guys sign. You care where the marginal producer signs because the lowest cost guys can only fill in bucket one and, you know, the first lower tiers of that bucket. When they start contracting in mass, it's where, where the higher price guys need to sign. So there's that bucket that's filled. But so the way we kind of look at it is, is okay. We, we, we like some of the producers that are on care and maintenance because we think they'll, they'll get, uh, they don't have, they don't need a lot of capital, relatively speaking, to start up again, and they'll generate cash flow, and the market will be attracted to the cash flow, and so that's that is something that's uh, a higher priority for us. Um, and then on the development stage companies, there's just a couple of assets that we think are just world class. Uh, we didn't reinvent the wheel there, by the way. Um, uh, where uh, we we just think that you know what the market is going to pay. And uh, when this cycle turns, the market's going to pay a significant amount more because this asset is just too good or these assets are just too good. And so that's kind of how we we think about it, where you will not see a lot. And, and we do own a little bit once in a while. We'll, we'll have uh, uh, a couple of exploration stage companies just because that's not our thing. Um, and, and fine, you know, that we know that's that's where you can get the monster returns. But but we're very content with sticking to what we can understand. We can understand an existing producer. We can understand a mine that's on care and maintenance. And then the the work that they're going to do to come back, we, we can go to our mining engineers. We can go to our geologists and ask if that makes sense. We get that. But, but poking a hole in the ground is not our strength. So we stay away from that. As far as um, geographies, you know, it's for us, it's, it's not necessarily the geography uh, itself. It's, it's the geography uh, and the experience of that geography with the commodity itself. So, um, <clears throat> you know, is is has this commodity been uh, extracted there for a long period of time? Is there a history? Is it important to the to the state revenues? Um, will they protect this industry? Will they not? Is there a history of of changing tax regimes? So it just kind of all depends. Everything's commodity specific. <clears throat> you know, in uranium, I would say we're uh, we're, we've got a little bit of little bit of everything. We're, we're yeah. not big. We're not big on statements, on 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 buzzwords, on catchwords. Uh, you know, we're we're very we're we're very clear. We're just we're a couple of outsiders, proud to be outsiders to the industry that have a differentiated macro view and stick to some basic knitting on 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 the companies, rec recognizing that there's many ways to get hurt by owning junior mining companies. So we try and reduce that as much as possible.
Indeed, yeah, absolutely. And Tim, just following on to this, um, you know, getting into a little bit more discussion here about, you know, supply demand and profiles, et cetera. But there has been recently some concern with uh, NextGen, a developer, crushing the market with their big production short mine life under their current proposed mining plan. Now, I struggle to see a strong impact with Cigar and MacArthur uh, really being meaningless during this time frame that I'm talking about here. But and of course, I question the time frame and of course the question or the price at which that comes in and when that decision is made. But what are your thoughts on this? You know, certain companies will crush the market. And what do you see as a real time frame for something like a aero deposit to actually be in production? You know, in, in terms of crushing the market, you know, I, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. You know, we, we've talked to, you know, all the management teams, you know, out there. Uh, they're, they're the people that have uh you know, solid development projects. They're very aware of their impact uh, potentially on the market in the future. Um, they're smart. They want to maximize shareholder value. There's no question about that. Um, in terms of when do we think specifically things will come on? I mean, look, Arrow is a generational deposit. Um, it's a fantastic uh, uh, a deposit in Northern Saskatchewan. Um, Look, they've got to go through uh, the, their, their permitting process, which they're working on heavily right now. They've got to come out with their updated feasibility study, which they're working on now, which will be coming out, you know, at some point uh, this year, you know, first half of the year, maybe this year. So we'll see what they say in those updated reports. But am I worried that a producer is going to come on and crush the market? I mean, the, the fact is, is let's say theoretically, let's just run a very theoretical example that you know, a big deposit like Air were to come on and that uh, they were going to start selling into the market. I mean, that, that means that a lot of things have gone right in the uranium macro market. You know, that means that obviously the, the permitting stage has gone well uh, and, and they've gotten that taken care of. It means that uh, they've got a bankable feasibility study. It means that they probably have signed some contracts to underwrite the financing of the mine itself. So, right. you know, the way that we look at it is it's kind of inverted again. I think for projects to come online, uh, that means a lot of things have gone very well in the macro market. And by the time those things happen, whether you believe it's 2025 or 2027 or 2030, uh, that an asset like that might come online, that means that the stocks would have probably already re-rated and the current opportunities that might be available today are likely not going to be the same uh, risk reward then. Yep. Well stated. Well stated. That's excellent. Um, and, and very much alignment with my view on it as well. And, and we'll get into the, the, uh, some of more of that discussion about, you know, global resumption of existing capacity in just a moment. But, um, Mike, I, I gotta ask you one, this one's a little bit silly, but, uh, what is your view of promotion by the listed companies in this sector? <laughs> it's a joke. Um, unfortunately it's, it's not a joke. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's not just the uranium; it's all junior mining. It's it's uh, look. I, I I get that that you have to be a wide-eyed optimist, right, to say, okay, I'm going to go find something underneath the surface and going to go extract it. But but um, that lends to a lot of snake oil salespeople, and not all of them. Um, There's some very good people that I've met, but but uh, Tim and I more often than not shake our heads. Um, and we, you know, as I see, you asked earlier, do you make mistakes? Well, you, you try and limit them and you do it very, uh, you, you, as you're learning a whole sector of companies, 
Um, but you see things and you see things about the costs and um, the, the, how they change their focus uh, and they shift and this what it was to go is now on iteration. None of the three iterations have come to fruition, but they get a new crop of investors or they convince the old crop of investors that there, there's a new, new thing now, or there's a new twist on it. And, you know, it's stuff like that where we just say, what, you know, WTF. Um, and uh, you see that and it's, it's pretty rank. It's nasty. Um, but it happens. It happens. We're not the we're not the police on that though, right? That's not we're not going to sit out there on Twitter and bang out who we think is good or not. It's just not our thing. And and um, it's uh, I, I don't have this truthfully, you know, Andrew. It's a it's a weird. The whole social media thing for me was weird. I was I'm, I'm a die in the wool introvert. I did the podcast, um, just being who I am, and I I I was uncomfortable with the inbound attention that came from it. Um, so we kind of stopped it and it was very time consuming. Um, but the, 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 you know, the, this whole, uh, it's a free for all, right? People can say whoever you, people, people hide behind names, they get nasty. Uh, you know, they, like there's civility is lost. And so, um, I, you know, I've, I've just personally chosen to not, to, to not go down that rabbit hole of which companies, uh, I think is bad or not I, I can't help you know people got to do their own work yep. but it is it is it is um, the promotion is, is stunning and you see how sometimes they will use uh, people in the industry or not in the industry that's the wrong term but they'll use people to promote themselves in many ways sometimes and it's uh, and and a lot of people just unsuspecting and they may not recognize it and you just say okay you know that yeah. won't work so long-winded answer, but you know, it's, 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 it's a weird, it's a weird, oh, junior mining is a weird space. Good. Yeah. Good points. Do your own work. You got to get them sorted out and that's going to continue. And it happens in the entire natural resource sector, as you stated. Yep. And uh, you know, instead of Ben and Jerry's here, we got to rename Sagem Cove to Mike and Tim's yellow cake factory in Cannery. <laughs> <I think> <laughs> um, well, okay guys, uh, Tim, just another question here and, and we're getting through here. I really appreciate you guys taking the extended time. This has been a fantastic discussion. Um, Tim, do you see backwardation occurring for a time in this sector, like later no. stage spot price exceeding no. long-term price? Okay. No. Okay. no, no backwardation. Well, so theoretically, you know, the, the market quote-unquote got backwardated um, very briefly for a moment, but that was that was skewed because of location differentials in April and May. Uh, if the market's real and the forward curve is real, backwardation is almost impossible in this market right now. And the reason why that is, is because there's so many pounds locked up in carry trades that if the market flipped from contango, where the forward curve is always rising, to backwardation, where it flips and starts trading at a discount in the future, carry traders would simply unlock the pounds that they have in these carry trades, sell them into the spot market, then go simultaneously buy back pounds in the forward market cheaper and put them back into the carry trade. So I don't see how a structural backwardation would happen um, anytime soon. Okay, very well. And, and later stage, do you see spot exceeding long-term at some point and, and so forth? 
yeah, it's just, it's tough. It's too tough to know. There's too many variables. It's, it, you know, like I said before, you know, really focus on that six to 12 month view. Once you really start getting past that, it gets really foggy and, you know, I'd just be completely guessing. It's, a, there's too many variables um, from both the supply side and how behavior of uh, utilities would be alongside with, you know, potential financial interest and, and not talking the, the traders in the industry, but, you know, hedge fund interest, institutional interest, buying physical. Um, it, there's just too many variables at play to even potentially predict how that, how that could go. Let's assume there's no growth in our data. And let's make the assumption that utilities don't restock to their historic levels as they did in the past. Call it a five-year average inventory for purposes of this question. And they use a smaller and shorter supply contracts at your average incentive price, which will allow existing global capacity restart. Do you see a balanced market at that point under these assumptions? I think it'd be tough. Uh, I mean, new mines need to come on. Um, that's a good question, but I think too many pounds are just coming out and too many mines are being depleted right now. Yep. Uh, I just Look, this it, is not a, uh, despite what, what was said publicly by one of the companies, that it's an incumbent's recovery, it's not. You need new mines. That, that there, there, is, there is no doubt. I mean, go, go reference what Riaz said, Riaz Rizvi, who left, who left Kazadaprom, uh, the chief commercial officer, who's a really sharp dude. Um, Riaz said, you need two of us, right? And um, we spent a lot of time with, with Riaz, a lot of, a lot of time, and have shared, uh, you know, over the years, uh, our, our modeling work. And, and, and these guys are smart. And uh, they said, you need a couple of new Kazadaproms, and you do. So, no, it's not one of these where you just, because yeah, these are long life projects that require a lot of capital that require time and permitting and and um you need prices to move it's it's all price dependent price has to get up there um so i don't know there yeah. there's nothing about this uranium market that goes oh, okay well we're going to move if this guy does that where that one's going to happen it's going to come around balance bullshit it just doesn't it's not going to we don't we don't view that as happening because of the 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 broken market structure the lack of the curiosity by the buyers, the traders with no balance sheets. It's like, boom, it's, they're going to get smacked in the face. They're going to run. They're going to go try and get pounds, whether it's, you know, everyone has this theory. It's going, oh, they're going to come in the short-term market. They're gonna, you know what? They're going to panic is what they're going to do because they've, they've done it before. And they could sit there and we talk to them and they'll say, oh, no, well, we're going we're gonna to be disciplined. We were talking to a, this trader the other day and he said, well, when prices rise, you know, the utilities, they'll just step out of the market like they did last time. And we said, I'm, I'm sorry, what? He said, well, you know, like they did in the last cycle when prices were rising, utilities didn't contract. I'm like, dude, what? You're joking, right? Like, have, have you studied the, the math and the contract data? No. They were tripping over themselves. The same guys who wouldn't sign and ladies who wouldn't sign contracts at 20 bucks were begging to sign contracts at 60 and 70 and 80. Right? So... Um, nothing, nothing about this market because it's so dysfunctional will be smooth and transitional. It will be like, boom. Yep. Yeah. I think you hit it squarely there. I think that's correct. And, and my calculations certainly show that in no doubt in my mind, that new development projects, selected development projects yeah, yeah, yeah. must yep. come online. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I want to couple this with another question and you mentioned phosphate first on here in the discussion, but when uranium prices do improve during this cycle, Mike, uh, is there any thoughts on some of this, you know, 
uranium extraction from phosphate, do you see that at higher prices that this could become a potential secondary supply? I mean, way down in the future. I mean, I don't even bother myself thinking that, right? So it's, Tim and I don't spend much time on that because the price is going to be where? It's going to, by, by the time uh, the, the Brazilian mine gets financed and funded or whatever it is, it, this shit's down the road. It's just like people worry about the people sit there and poke at, at the next cycle, tech, the, the next technology. Uh, oh, what about seawater extraction? Okay, dude, they've been talking <laughs> about this forever. You know, I mean, you, all this shit comes out. The, the reality is these are, mar- look at what's happening um, in, in some of these highly shorted names. You want to see what happens when markets react? Right. I mean, it's animal spirits take over. Uh, So, you know, could it be? Yeah. But look, anyone who thinks that they're going to become a a 20 year uranium investor is in the wrong trade. That's not going to happen. Prices are going to boom. You're playing a greater fool theory. Right. You're finding a mispriced asset. It's really mispriced. It has to rise meaningfully to get to the marginal cost of production. Otherwise, the demand will not be met. Unless it gets there, demand will not be met. Reactors will be shut down. When it gets there, it will overshoot. And then somebody's going to come along because they're late to the game and and dream a new dream. And they're going to sit there and say, well, look at this. Prices can get to one. Well, really, prices should start at 150 or make up a number because that's the next crop of people that are going to come in. That's that's a narrative that's taken over. We'll be long gone. And, and, and the world is already trying to, and it's, and it's awkward because the, the market and, and risk capital that's coming in to get positioned for everything is in equities. So we've seen equities go up recently over the last few months. Yeah. This is the market coming to the realization that pounds are needed, that, that prices need to go up. And, and the equities are beginning to price this in because institutional investors that's right. are beginning to see the writing on the wall. Now, whether the utilities believe that or not or are going to do that or not, doesn't matter. The point is there isn't a mechanism in the physical market to allow that price discovery, but That's it right. is trying to be offered in elsewhere. And, and don't forget, Andrew, as people are coming into the space, institutions are coming in. And, and in our perch, we see it with, with the, as we were talking about earlier. Um, there's only a very limited number of companies they can invest in, A, because of the size of most funds, even a, a, a million hedge fund or bigger, you know, if they're going to express the view, you're running 500 million bucks, you're a generalist hedge fund. You you really like the thesis. It makes a lot of sense. You're going to put 10% of the fund into the thesis. That's $50 million. Well, there are very few companies you can, and you're not going to own one. You're probably going to own a couple. Um, The the companies are too small, right? So even for those, so um, then what starts happening is the bigger funds start to recognize this and you start to see it permeate within, I mean, we get, <laughs> I mean, because of uh, just being around the industry for uh, not just uranium, but an investor uh, uh, for, uh, you know, 25 years, I have people call me all the time from investment banks wanting to come in and talk to us and tell us this, and now they're getting up to speed on uranium and so on and so forth. But, but when the bigger funds start coming in, well, they can only express that view in so many ways. So where do they look next? Different ways to express the view. Right. They they'll recognize and are recognizing the supply demand dynamic. Right. They're recognizing the ESG role. If some of them might have a view that come up, that dollar gets weaker, commodities are mispriced. But the point is, it's not just the equities and there's limited equities to play it. The next stop is physical uranium and what the what the utilities and what the traders and what they don't price in. And happened last time, too, in the last cycle, physical funds bought 40 million pounds of uranium. What they don't recognize is that pretty soon. 
the choice could be taken away from them as to when they enter the market to start buying because it takes one fund, one physical fund to decide they're going to put a few hundred million bucks to work and it's good night, Irene. It's done. Game, set, match. And so, um, again, though, they will be asleep at the switch on that. Why? I don't know if it's an apathy or an arrogance or uh, what it is. Not sure. Not sure. But but that's what our view would be was, is, yeah. you know, you should always protect your flank. And and we don't think there's a lot of flank protection. Here, here's the on. other thing, Andrew. If utilities didn't think prices were going to go up, wouldn't they be thrilled to sign market reference contracts, long-term contracts today? Because they can do that. They can approach producers and sign market reference contracts for the next five, seven years. Yeah. Why aren't Chemical they doing will that? Sign those. Chemical will sign those all day long. We'll say, why, let's why go. They because yeah. they know they're going to get run over if they do that. They're trying to get, you know, base escalate. They're trying to get, you know, these fixed contracts because they recognize the dynamics here. They're not dumb, yeah. but, you yeah. know, for whatever bizarre incentives, they're just, you know, and again, the fuel cycle, we talked about it. So they'll, they'll take their time and they'll do however it is, whether it's a month or 12 months, or maybe Mike's right. Maybe funds come in and their hands are forced, but either way you dice it. Uh, if they if they were not worried about this market, they would be signing market reference contracts all over the place instead of doing carry trades, locking in prices. Because you now carry trades are just fixed forward prices, effectively. They're locking in a price, and that's that. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic, and that's a great point. And you know, look, it's a classic supply squeeze. That's all it is. It's, it's a classic squeeze. And so this is fantastic where we're sitting today in the market. And then, you know, look, it is forward looking, as Mike indicated, it will become more forward looking. And then, of course, it's just the crowd comes in. It, like you said, the, the funds will come in in herds, retail will come in in herds, utilities will come in with herds. Yeah. And then when you look at the incentive price of 50 bucks or 55 or 60, in some cases, 65, 70, and some of the crappiest projects that need really high optionality, the fact of the matter is, is once you start those decision processes of restarting and, and doing new mines, you just started the clock of, you know, 12, 18, 24 months, permitting processes, restart process, construction, add two years construction, three year construction, four year yep. construction, and then the whole fuel cycle on the back end. It's it's just uh, forward well, looking. It's an understatement. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, Andrew, you, yeah, you brought up a, a, a good point, a lot of good points there. Um you know, once once it starts kicking in, it just it takes on a life of its own. Um, the and that's you know the the mar and it, it the question earlier was you know when if they don't with how contracting looks. Well, it all depends, right? Do they they've been contracting at mid thirties percent the last seven years? Do they decide they're going to run back to a hundred percent of their annual consumption right away? Maybe maybe not. But once they get past uh, uh, once they get past roughly half of their annual consumption, right? Depending on what your number is. Once they start to get past contracting for half of it, then you immediately go to the marginal cost of, what's the marginal cost of production? The first half of those contracting, and this is so important, that can be filled by the Kazakhs, by the, the high cost. And you know, the Kazakhs, this or the Russians or the yeah, no shit, it doesn't right. So if utilities continue, they're in their going into their eighth year of contracting in the mid on average mid thirties percent of consumption, which is like almost unprecedented. Um, it, in in the in the bull market, they were contracted at one hundred fifty percent of consumption. So if they and inventories are are run down and run down and they're under con, under buying, it, 
you just got to remember when they start buying to that uh, above half of it, because the Russians and kind of, yeah, they, it doesn't matter what they sell it. I don't care what they sell it at. Of course they can sell it cheaply. That, that, that It doesn't matter. It's what's the marginal producer sell it at. Because the forward curve today is not priced off that. The forward curve is priced off today's interest rate plus a little bit of uh, interest rate going forward. It's not based off marginal cost of production. Think about that. Think about what a sophisticated hedge fund could recognize when they come in and they want to structure products and, and trades based off of an inefficient option market. And, and to take it a step further, just to show you that they do care about uh, these production facilities and these mines, three years ago, they couldn't care less, couldn't have cared less about conversion. And now, what do you hear? They're anxiously awaiting whether Converdine's going to be restarted or not. Uh, hello? What, you think these mines are in any different situation than Converdine were in? So, and so three years ago, you couldn't have cared less about that facility. Couldn't pay $5, $6 for conversion. And now you're anxiously awaiting to see if they're going to restart or not? That tells you, A, their thinking is way too short term. And B, how do you think these miners feel? Okay? Like, you have to buy this stuff. There is no substitute product. So their behavior, their uh, the way that they look at this market, the way that they want to support these production facilities will change. I guarantee it. Beautiful. I think they restock in a big way, a big way. With COVID, it's, it's about back to the comment earlier about just-in-time inventory versus just-in-case. <laughs> yeah. So, Mike, talk about the market impact, and this is another audience question here, but and this is forward-looking here with the impact of the SMRs. Do you see that these will really be built in the second half of this decade? And do you see that this will uh, play into the thesis mid-late stage? Maybe. Um, sounds good. Good story. Makes sense. Could could be they get funding. They'll get funding. It would be a good part of the narrative. You could use them. It's a compelling case. Uh, will there be uranium needed for them? Yes. Will it be monumental? Probably not. Um, but it, it just forwards the nuclear power story. Tim, you have a, a, a different way of thinking yeah, about it? Yeah, the exact same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful as a you know pro-nuclear advocate and clean energy advocate. Um, I hope SMRs do become part of the global landscape. Um, it's certainly not priced in to our thesis in any way, but I am hopeful just as a pro-nuclear person that uh, these reactors are advanced and uh, can, can help uh, the global grid. Yeah. Agreed. And I, I think it's time to take these these PWRs that have been operating in, in you know, certainly nuclear submarine applications and, and maritime applications. It's, it's time to put them put them out, commercialize them. Makes a lot of sense. Certainly not factored in, but I think it can have some teeth as we get going and, and they actually first get deployed. And, and given the amount of companies and capital that's, and, and names that's being attracted to this particular segment, I do think that uh, this will get done. On what scale, I don't know, but I do think we'll see a couple of them come about. Um, let's move on here. An audience question and just really a statement, and I quote now, please ask Mike and Tim about how they feel giving anyone who wanted to listen the opportunity for life-changing investments. How one plays the cycle is up to every individual, but thanks to their work and their willingness to share, the opportunity was created. So just a quick thank you from the oh, early retail well, club. That's awesome. That's great. That we that that we 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 love hearing, um, yeah. 
I mean, that's, you know, why we started talking about it publicly because we thought there was a disconnect with fundamentals and stuff. I, I, I mean, I'll be perfectly, I mean, I can't be more clear and honest in this. I, I, I've backed out because I, it, 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 it becomes too much. Like it's, um, uh, when you become a little more, I'm, I'm a nobody, right? I'm just a guy who knows how to pick stocks sometimes. Sometimes I'm good at it, sometimes I'm not, but been more more good than not. And I tend to get it right more than not. But, but, um, but the, uh, you know, the, the guy, the, the, the guy or lady that are sitting there trying to, to learn and, and make a big difference. I mean, that, that makes it, that's everything. I, I, I spoke at a couple of conferences and some people came up to me and stopped me in the hallways. And I was, and, and I was, it was funny. I was telling my kids then they're like, you I'm like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, I know. Right. And then I was doing the, um, uh, the podcast and it just, it, it was uncomfortable. Um, cause it was just no different than anyone else. Just happened to know this, how to put a model together. Cause I, I've done that before, but, but it, it just gets, um, that's very nice to hear. It's when you start to, but it's, it's when people, you know, you start to open yourself up more to it and, you know, look, I'm just a, I'm just a regular guy and a dad that, that likes to go home and, and have dinner with my family and put my head on the pillow and, and wake up the next day and do it again. Then you, you kind of expose yourself to this whole world out there. And that's more than I, and I didn't know that. I didn't know what it was like doing any of this stuff. Um, you know, I think Tim at one point, um, um, uh, so hang on. Hey, uh. I'm sorry, Tim just texted me something that was very funny. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, so thank you. It was very nice to hear. Um, from- yeah, no, that's, that's really nice to hear. And look, I mean, we, we obviously hope, we're, you know, we're creating value. We're creating value for, you know, our investors, uh, for other people out there. Hopefully they're able to do work as jump off points like we've talked about before. And uh, hopefully they, they, they do well as well, you know, too. So um, that's that's a very kind note from uh, that uh, that listener. Yeah, and just to finish up to do it justice, you know, so just a quick thank you from the early retail club, not those that are now shouting out there, et cetera, but to those who are quietly accumulating for the past yes. years. Yes, and and, and uh, Andrew, we get I get I get some DMs from some some of those people, and they really kind, nice people, um, uh, really very thoughtful. Um, it's, and, and there's some newer ones that are very nice too. Again, I, I don't, I don't check it a lot. Every couple of weeks I might pop in or something. Um, but, uh, uh, you, you, well, wow, I'm getting a call right now from the New York Islanders. That's pretty cool. Um, only cause they want to sell me, they only, they want to sell me tickets. That's all. <laughs> but, <I> but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. They, but, um, anyway, the, um, yeah. It, there's well, some look, really nice people. Yeah, and look, I'm surprised you still have your your direct messaging actually still turned on. I'm surprised. I don't know how to shut it off. I I don't know how to. If I knew how I would, I tried. I tried, and I can't figure it out. I'll bet you um, there's messages that come across about how to do it now. Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't know how to do it. I tried to figure out how to how to shut that off, and um, um, there was a time, you know, Tim. Tim got off of Twitter. He just had it. And I was going to, too. And I said, no, because if, if to, to the extent anyone cares, um, uh, people probably don't care, but they would say, oh, they, they don't care about it, which is not true. I mean, we're, this is our highest conviction ever in the thesis, but it's, it's just, uh, for, for me, the platform isn't that been a, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, uh, outlived. It's, it's, um, uh, uh, it's useful, not usefulness. That's not, that sounds wrong. It's, it's just something that it creates more noise for, for me than anything else. 
yeah, yeah, you gotta <laughs> definitely gotta turn it off, and it's it's a hard lesson to learn. But I think we've all accumulated that discipline over the years to be able to turn this and shut this crap out. Yeah. Um, so, and, and again, so, by the way, there are some wonderful resources on there for people, right? That um, that that people do a really great job of it, and they keep everyone informed. That's wonderful. Um, it's just not it's not my thing. So. Yeah. And I'll take uh, closing comments here in just a moment, but uh, wrapping up here to our audience, thank you for taking the time to join Mike, Tim, and myself. We appreciate the relevant questions, contributions coming from Aaron M at Uranium Invest R, Benjamin H U at U Belgium Bull, Dale H. And if we've missed anyone, forgive us. Unfortunately, we're not able to get to all of the questions uh, just for the sake of time here. And if you're not a Smith Weekly member and have joined us for the first time on this event, make sure you check us out on our website, smithweekly.com, and also via Twitter, at Smith Weekly. We appreciate any comments, questions, feedback that you might have, happen to have here, um, and you can reach out to us using the contact information shown on the screen. And uh, to wrap up here, Tim, uh, tell the audience how all this ends. Huh, man, I wish I knew. I uh... Unfortunately, my crystal ball was uh, dropped a long time ago and shattered on the uh, street. But, uh, look, you know, again, it's it's that six to 12 month forward view. You know, we're really curious to see um, as we get into the later first quarter here, second quarter, um, just how kind of utilities are working their way through the fuel cycle. It'll be really interesting to see what kinds of RFPs come out, what periods of time utilities are looking for coverage rates um, and in what form are they looking for EUP deliveries? Um, you know, only where someone's going to have to go out and source all this material and get it through the fuel cycle. Are they going to be doing uh, EUP and UF6? Are they going to be doing EUP, UF6, and U308? So it's important to look at the product form of RFPs that uh, they're interested in. It's a, it's a very important to look at the volumes and the time periods that they're looking for coverage at. And we'll just kind of take that information in as it goes. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, while it is, you know, it feels like we're turning a, a corner a little bit here with COVID, you know, vaccine rollouts are going, which is wonderful to see to all the people across the world, the frontline workers that have been working their tails off for 12 plus months now. Um, you know, unfortunately, in certain parts of the world, we're, we're, it's just still very uncertain. You know, we don't know how things are going to affect uh, operations in northern Saskatchewan. You know, we're not sure how things will continue to affect uh, things in Central Asia. So we're waiting just like everybody else, trying to understand the pieces to the puzzle, uh, weighing the risks and the rewards and the odds of things happening. Uh, but that's what uh, we're paying attention to. Yep, absolutely. And I think we're all here, especially the three of us on here are still here to write checks if needed um, and the market conditions allow. Mike, final comments to close out. Oh, um, thanks for having us on. Um, you know, it's uh, keep following the fundamentals and, and, and they'll eventually take you to where, you know, you think you're going to go. Um, yeah, I know we're, we're happy with demand. Demand is a little bit better than we thought it would be. Supply is better than we thought it would be. Inventories are down. Secondary supply is under control. Um, contracting needs to be done. Uh, if it's today, tomorrow, or the next day, who knows? But but I'd, I'd rather be uh, on our side than be a fuel buyer right now. 
Well, gentlemen, uh, let's leave it there. It was great to have you on, and I know our audience is much appreciating this chat we put together for them. Um, this was a high-quality discussion, and thank you again for taking the time to share your insights and wisdom with us. I want to wish both of you well and an open invite to come back and chat in 2022. And on behalf of our guests in Smith Weekly, stay well. Good luck out there. Thanks, Andrew. We Thanks, appreciate Andrew, you too. Please stay stay well and uh, wish you and your family well in 2021 and all the listeners. and. Thanks for having us.